0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why meeting a billionaire is a great cover story for a date. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. For most of you, Holden Karnofsky is not going to need any introduction, because he's a, or maybe even the, driving force behind GiveWell and Open Philanthropy. He was also a guest back in 2018 for our episode 21, uh, explaining one effective altruist-styled approach to doing the most good through philanthropy. He has recently started a new personal blog called Cold Takes and has been publishing a series of essays which lay out the worldview that he and a significant part of open philanthropy are now working from as they try to disperse billions of dollars. I think it's an outstanding series and so naturally I think it made an outstanding episode as well. I'm particularly passionate about this topic, in part because I found it quite frustrating to repeatedly hear that for people who want to do a lot of good, long-termism or or the things that long-termists are actually doing are weird or in some way violate common sense. It seems to me like a lot of people kind of repeat that without having properly thought it through or even necessarily believing it. But to me, when you zoom out and look carefully at the broad situation that humanity is actually in, then the topics and projects that long-termists tend to be excited about make a lot more sense both common and otherwise than the alternative philosophies of doing good that I often hear proposed. I don't really feel like I'm on the back foot defending this work because the prima facie common sense case for long-termism in my view is as strong as what, as what anyone else has. I don't think that's, uh, that's Holden's view but I hope if you listen to this episode or read through his articles you'll understand where I'm coming from when I say all of that. One quick announcement is that we're currently hiring a new head of marketing to help more people who would be interested in this show or 80,000 hours online articles or our one-on-one advising to find out that all of those things actually exist. If you'd like more people to think about improving the world using the kind of mentality that we demonstrate on the show and might want to work at 80,000 hours, then click through the link to the job ad on the blog post associated with this episode. Finally, in the interest of full disclosure, Open Philanthropy is one of 80,000 hours' biggest funders. We're releasing this episode in two parts, so without further ado, here's the first half of my conversation with Holden Karnofsky. Today, I'm speaking with Holden Karnofsky. In 2007, Holden co-founded the charity Evaluator GiveWell, and then in 2014, co-founded the foundation Open Philanthropy, where he now leads Open Philanthropy's long-termist grantmaking. OpenPhil, as it's often called, works to find the highest impact grant opportunities and is so far recommended over a billion dollars in grants. He also recently started a blog called Cold Takes, where he hopes to share his personal ideas about futurism, quantitative macro history and applied epistemology, among many other topics. Thanks for returning to the podcast, Holden.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back.
0: I hope we're going to get to talk about your views on career choice and your take on how this century might be particularly exceptional. But first, what are a couple of important updates from Open Philanthropy over the over the last year or two?
1: Yeah, well, I'll give you a big one, which is that very recently we announced that Alexander Berger was promoted to co-CEO. And so Open Philanthropy is now kind of a two-headed organization. And the reason we did that is because there's been this growing distinction. It's been growing in importance at Open Philanthropy between two kinds of two kind of frameworks for the question of how do I do the most good possible with the money? And, you know, that's generally the mission of Open Phil is to take. All the money that our donors are working with, and you know spend it in a way that's going to do as much good as possible, whatever that means and it kind of ends up meaning slightly different things we've written about this before in the context of things like worldview investigation and dividing causes into categories, but it just increasingly feels like there's two big ways of thinking about how to do good in the world and one of them is something that I, I, I think you've talked about a lot on your podcast, which is this idea of longtermism and so you say we want to help kind of the most persons possible and there's an overwhelmingly large number of persons in the future. And so whatever we can do that can make the whole future go better, that is the best way to do the most good possible. And so what you you end up doing is, you know, you're kind of measuring every grant and everything you're doing, not in terms of some kind of measure like, you know, how many years of healthy life did we add for someone? You're just measuring it kind of in terms of the you know, the expected goodness of the whole future or, you know, generally more approximately like the probability that humanity gets through some difficult period of, you know, a big risk and gets a good outcome from some sort of, you know, big technological transition. And so it's it's this kind of, uh, you know, I I think I think it's Nick Bostrom maybe who called it like to maximize the probability of things going okay. And that just, you know, that tends to be the metric you're using. And that one, you know, it's kind of a well-defined idea. And the other mentality and the other way of doing good is just the more traditional common sense way of doing good, which is to say, you know, it's not all rolled into one bet. It's not all about the long run future. We're going to kind of just do things that are more a little bit more like using an unusual quantitative analytic mindset to do things that, you know, would be a little bit more recognizable as hey, these are these are nice things to be doing for people. And so global health and well-being tends to measure their work in things like, you know, disability adjusted life years. So that's like how many years of healthy life did we allow people to have more of? Did we avert unnecessary deaths? Did we cause the world to be richer? Did we, you know, reduce suffering? Did we increase happiness? That kind of thing, global health and well-being. And they're just two very different mentalities. And there's a lot of things that are different between the two of them. And Alexander has been increasingly just taking charge of the global health and well-being side. I think he has a really great framework in his head. I think this podcast is coming like shortly after a podcast with him, so I don't need to talk about him a lot, but he's been phenomenal and there's a couple reasons we made this change. One is that I just thought he was the right person to be officially in charge of global health and well-being and it's increasingly he'd been unofficially in charge. I wanted that to be recognized. The other thing is that I wanted to be able to personally just really focus I really believe it's good when you can focus on one kind of problem. And I think long-termism is a very different kind of problem. And so I wanted to kind of get my head all the way into the space of just this long-termist framework to spend my time that way. And so I'm excited about getting to do that. And that's, that's kind of related to me sort of recently becoming like a little more solid in my feeling that the most important century is, is a serious possibility, uh, that this century could be the most important century and, and really wanted to focus on the implications of that.
0: Yeah, I guess Open has been growing in terms of its headcount and and its aspirations for how much money to to give away. I suppose had it just become kind of unmanageable in your head to like keep track of you know this AI stuff, all of the long termist work, as well as the the animal animal things. I imagine a bunch of it was getting getting neglected, perhaps.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you can always use an org chart. I mean, you, you know, you can always make this <laughs> stuff work. I mean, the the funny thing is Open Phil is going to grow staff and is going to grow its giving. But in the near term, at least a lot more of that growth is going to come on the global health and well-being side. Like, I think I think Alexander is going to end up probably running like a bigger team than like than the whole organization is now. And we're going to have to make that work. But I think the you know, there is a big difference, which is that with global health and well-being, you're kind of doing a little bit more recognizable as charity work or as philanthropy. And so you have a lot of grantees and you can deploy a huge amount of capital. And that creates a need to hire a lot of people. And the long term aside, I've just come to feel that Money is not the biggest bottleneck right now, and a lot of what we need to do is we need to be active grant makers. We need to you know, have a really good vision of how to get that money used more and used better, and I think a lot of the blocker on long-termism right now is it's just – it's a really – the the headspace we're living in, the view we've got of what's going on in the world and what's most important for the long run – is just not held by a lot of people. And when you don't really have your head in that space and when you don't really have that picture, you know, it's hard, I think, to be a grantee that we're very excited to fund. You know, so they just, they feel like really different missions. It actually feels like the long-term team right now should be kind of small, nimble, experimental, improvisational, and just kind of understanding and owning that we don't really know what we're doing. And, you know, we're <laughs> kind of this this early stage organization that is figuring itself out because we don't have a giant pile of giving opportunities to sort through and write the checks to. So global health and well-being is going to have to operate at scale, much bigger scale than we've been at. Yeah, interesting. And I'm just a person who historically, I mean, I just I like to work on really early stage things where we don't know what we're doing. And I like to build them into things that are more mature and that can scale. But, you know, I think there's usually a better person to take them from there
0: yeah it's it's very interesting you're saying that I guess you've spent years now trying to increase the amount of giving you're giving within the long term as portfolio and just kind of concluded that to some extent you have to drum up business a bit or, or bring yeah. in bring in new people who who have what it takes to start projects rather than just give money to people who are who are there already which i guess starts to seem almost like building a building a team or almost <laughs> like trying to find people who are good enough to hire in in a kind of loose way to to do yeah. projects that you think are valuable.
1: Yeah, I think that's a reasonable analogy. And yeah, I think that's basically where we are. I mean, we we definitely give away, you know, tens of millions of dollars for long-termist causes. There's a lot of really great people out there that we fund, but there's a lot more capital available than that. And so, you know, it, I, and, and, I'm, and I'm not, I definitely am not saying we're funding all the good people because in order to fund all the good people, we'd have to have this incredible searching ability and recognition and evaluation ability. So, you know, it's not, it's not the, oh, we got everyone. It's more like, oh we could spend a lot of time making sure we got every single person, but even then you know, we'd be, I mean, I would be surprised if there's no way that would double the amount of money we're giving away every year.
0: We just have to look in a different direction. All right. Uh, we'll come back to, to that topic later on. Just first off, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your background. And one story that I that I haven't heard is, so you are at GiveWell for a number of years, and then things changed quite a lot when Curry Tuna and Dustin uh, Moskovitz who had his significant aspirations to give away billions possibly i guess uh, tens of billions of dollars over the course of uh, of the course of their lives, they got in touch and were i suppose interested to to hear your thoughts on, on how they could do that more effectively. yeah, how did you feel personally when they emailed or called you What's 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 the, what's the background there
1: yeah so the uh, the story of how the first meeting happened is is just kind of funny I mean I, so what happened was that we got an email I think from a from a mutual friend connecting us to Dustin and Carrie, and you know he's just kind of like, hey, do you want to meet and talk about giving? I don't, I don't remember exactly what he said, and I kind of looked him up, and I was like, hi, huh, he's the world's youngest billionaire. And then, and then somehow, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how, and I don't have any defense of this. But Ellie and I were just like, this just doesn't seem very high priority. I, I don't know why. I don't know how we reached that conclusion. <laughs> I'm trying to like think through the logic in my head. Um, I think it was something like, a, well, you know, any, a lot of that week. Yeah, I don't know what was going on. Um, We were just like, you know, we should definitely take this meeting next time someone's in California. We should definitely take this meeting. But it's like this isn't the kind of thing we would rush for because it's just like, I don't know. We had some vision of what kind of person would be interested in give. and we didn't think it would be them or would be like really, you know, really good match with what we were doing. I don't know. But then at the same time, I really wanted to go to San Francisco because there was this girl that I I had recently become (laughs) single and I wanted to go on a date with her. And I had a dilemma, which is I didn't want to just show up in San Francisco being like, hey, I came out to go on a date. I just I don't know. I just thought that would be weird. Um, and so, so what, I, what I did is I, Ellie and I made an agreement, which is that I paid for the plane ticket. To go out to San Francisco to meet Carrie and Dustin, but then I got to kind of officially say if anyone asked me that I was there to be Carrie and Dustin, not to go on a date with this girl. So that was that was what Carrie and Dustin meant to me at the time was was just a cover story, and uh, you know. And then we had this meeting, and it was this wonderful meeting, and they were just you know I I I almost never hear someone say this when they're when they're a big philanthropist like that is they were just like we just want to do the most good possible. And I asked all the questions you're supposed to ask, like, but what do you care about? And what do you want to do? They were like the most good possible. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was this amazing meeting. And, uh, you know, I kind of shared a lot of my early opinions with them. And then after that, Carrie followed up and and kind of said that, you know, she was really excited to work together closely and they offered an initial donation. And it was, you know, it really got off to a very fast start. And, you know, we we were very excited talking about it, saying, you know, hey, GiveWell is cool, but I don't know if it's the best product for someone like them. Why don't we try this thing, GiveWell Labs, where we, you know, it it started as just trying to give away one million dollars as well as we could with no special rules and criteria like GiveWell had. And so it was awesome, but yeah, I mean, it just uh, the the original thinking. I don't I don't know. It was it was a cover story, and then the you know the girl that I was going on a date with, you know, now we're married, and and by the time this podcast comes out, we will have like just had our first kid. So that also was good. So it was a good trip.
0: It's a huge huge weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, nice. I guess. Did you find it kind of intimidating at all? I suppose it sounds like. You didn't really appreciate how important a meeting this could potentially be, so you were kind of yeah, going in unbothered. <laughs> yeah,
1: unbothered is a good word for yeah. Unbothered is a good word for like pretty much how I would interact with anyone in those days, and and, yeah. and kind of still now. I, I would say, and it's not necessarily. I wouldn't say that's a good idea in every case, but I think it was it was good in that case.
0: Yeah. You might be the wrong person to to ask this to but over the years you've had to manage some pretty important relationships where you know how well these relationships go kind of influences a lot how your how how your life goes or how at least your your, your career goes And I know a bunch of people out there whose work has this kind of property that a big thing that they spend their time doing is figuring out how to manage this relationship with someone who's much richer or much more significant or or influential than them. And they've got to make sure they don't annoy them. And I think many of them find that quite anxiety inducing. And when I've had to do that in the past, I find it incredibly anxiety inducing as well. Do you have any kind of tips for people who find themselves in, in that sort of sort of position?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Like, I I kind of have tips that'll work for some people and not others, or something. Or maybe I'm just the wrong person to ask. So, you know, for for me, I've just always been, you know, rightly or wrongly, and and maybe wrongly in some sense, but just not very attentive to that stuff. And it it makes me really unhappy when people treat me that way. Like people who are, you know, let's say say report up to me, or they're a grantee of Open Philanthropy and they approach me as this like you know, very scary figure you have to be very careful with. You should never argue back. You should never go. like that makes me really unhappy and I don't like it. And I I've never really treated people like, you know, whatever people who I'm really trying to build a relationship with. I had never really treated them that way either. It's just been a little bit more like a a pure attitude or a friend making attitude, which is, you know, this kind of very naive be yourself. All right. Well, if this person doesn't like me, then I should move on and find another person to work with, you know, and I think I don't know. I think there are definitely cases where that can work incredibly well. And there's probably cases where it backfires hugely. It depends what kind of person you're dealing with. You know, an advantage of it in my case is it's just got a selection effect. So it just means that, you know. And, and I think generally what, whatever you're doing, if you, if you if you have some, you know, if you have a style that's very consistent, then you're going to bounce people who don't work with it and you're going to attract people who do. And so that in many ways is better than kind of having these relationships that are hanging by a thread
0: where well, you constantly have to be somewhat insincere or kind of put, exactly. put on an act. It's, I guess it's it's exhausting exactly. and, and it might well not work anyway.
1: Exactly, and 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 look, I mean, there's a lot of good to be done that way too, especially when the relationships are high stakes enough. But actually, I mean, there's you know, there's a fair number of, of billionaires out there. There's not infinite, but there's you know, so it'd be different if you're dealing with like you know a a head of state. There's only one. Um, yeah. There's a fair number of billionaires out there, so I think it, I think it made some sense to just you know I think if we had. If we had somehow found a way to give one exactly what they wanted and built, it would have been a much more fragile partnership. And the thing is that GiveWell always, always grew up in this world of charities and philanthropy advising that was all about the donor's needs and all about making the donor happy and all about catering to the donor. And as donors, we didn't like it was like we were, you know, we were trying to give away just, you know, a few thousand dollars as hedge fund people in, in our early 20s. And, you know, we didn't like the way that it was just every conversation turned to what we wanted. We were trying to figure out how much good they were doing. And so Giveaway was always just this, you know, zig when everyone is zags. And so our sales pitch was kind of like, we don't care about you, which, you know, this kind of, this <laughs> kind of backward sales pitch that's just like. You know, every together. other philanthropic advisor, their whole mission is to say, what do you care about? And give all would show up and be like, we don't care what you care about. We're going to help other people as well as we can. If you like that, you can give there. If you don't, then that's too bad because we're not doing custom research. And that was always yeah. the attitude. It's like, you know, when it's unique and when there's nothing else like it, you can form a more robust relationship. If there is someone who likes that, then by trying to, you know, conform yourself exactly to someone. But that, that does not mean that's the advice I'd give everyone. But I think it's, it's kind of a shame
0: to miss out on it when it would have worked is, is the thing I would say. Yeah. You mentioned that I guess people sometimes have a deferential attitude now. The thing is open fill is kind of a big deal and and you're kind of a big deal. Do you have any, any fond memories of the kind of things that you were able to do with GiveWell and Ellie Hassenfeld just running a scrappy organization back in 2007 or 2011? The kind of thing that you like couldn't or just wouldn't do now that things are more professionalized?
1: You know, most of the tangible stuff I can think of that's different seems better now. I mean, the way that I used to spend my time, I think I like I think I spent like a whole week trying to like unravel our finances or something at one point, (laughs) Um, you know, it, it so I mean, most of the tangible stuff I think is just better now. There's we're able to do so much more. There's a lot of great people. The things that I can like that come to my head. I mean, what, well, we moved the whole we moved all give all to India for four months. I mean, that's not a thing we would really be able to do today, although with all the remote work, maybe, um, yeah. you know. So, but that was that was a cool thing to be able to do. I liked having a blog where I was just able to like rant like I would write. I would like write a post in an hour and just put it up. And, you know, and a lot of times I'd be talking about subs, that was fun for me. I don't know that that was actually a good idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think uh, I think that the new blog I'm going to have is is like probably closer to that than like other stuff I've done in a long time. But it's still not going to be like that. I mean, that that was just kind of fun. But again, a lot of this stuff, it's like, I don't know, it was fun. Was it actually a good idea? not really, you know, and I I think most of the things that have changed have changed for the better in terms of, you know, how good they are. You know, I I have said that I don't I just don't enjoy heavily hierarchical interactions. So in in terms of how it feels, I I like to have peers more than, you know, more than the standard report relationship when I can. And, and, you know, generally in practice right now, I can't.
0: Yeah, that is a shame. But I guess it uh, well, I suppose actually with colleagues you've had for a long time potentially, or people who you've been land like managing yeah. for for many years, may, may, maybe it does become a more of a pure relationship gradually, or, or they they begin to trust that you actually do really mean that. It.
1: Yeah, it's more it's more like that. It moves in that direction.
0: All right, let's push on to our first big topic for the day, which is this series of blog posts that you've been uh, working on and are now gradually releasing called "The Most Important Century," which is going on your uh, your Cold Text blog, which we'll link to. I've been lucky enough to get get a bit of a preview of them. It basically, it explains why you think the world could change really dramatically in the next 100 years in a way that would make it likely one of the one of the most important times in the in the entire history of the of the accessible accessible universe and i guess i hadn't quite connected that it sounds like one motivation for writing this is that you think in order to find more good grant making opportunities in long-termism you need more people who kind of share your worldview and you realize you haven't actually explained your worldview in public for for, for a very long time so now you're you're getting it down yeah are there any other motivations for, for for working on this series I mean, I'm not going to say
1: it's the most strategic thing in the world. I did an awful lot of it on personal time. Like a lot a lot of it was just this feeling of like, gosh, you know, we're making really big decisions based on this kind of strong belief that there's this very important thing that very few people are paying attention to. And if I try to explain it to someone, I can't point them to anywhere where it's been like kind of clearly written down in one place. And that, that that's just like that. that it's just kind of driving me crazy. So I think that's like so, some of the motivation was just this, you know, this unstrategic, like, gosh, like, that's a weird situation. We should do something about that. Yeah, it's definitely true that also in my mind, I'm thinking, well, a lot of what's holding us back is that so few people kind of see the world the way we do, or are, are looking at the thing we're looking at when they think about what's most important. And so maybe having something you could read to see what we think is most important would be really good, which there kind of hasn't been, you know, so that, that that's in terms of the, you know, personally why I've, why I've, written these posts. I think it's also good though, to situate it in the context of, of the larger project open Phil has been engaging in over the last two years, which is that, or two years, I don't know, a little bit longer than that, but the, you know, the long team. Has been thinking for a while. We we are really making very large decisions about large amounts of money and talent on the basis of this hypothesis that different people would put different ways. But I I would basically say the hypothesis is that we could be in the most important century of all time. And you know, you could also say, well, if there's only an 0.1 percent chance that we're in the most important century, then maybe a lot of the stuff follows. I'm not really sure it does you know but but i certainly i th- i think a lot of how we think about it is just like no there's a really good chance this is you know this is the most important century or or at least like is very high up there on the list of important centuries because we could be looking at the development of some kind of technology notably ai that then causes A massive explosion in economic growth and scientific advancement and ends in the kind of civilization that's able to achieve a very high level of like stability and expansion across the galaxy. And so then you've got, you know, this enormous future civilization that's much bigger than ours. That, you know, if and when that AI is developed that speeds things up, that's going to be the crucial time for like. What kind of civilization that is and what values it has and who's in charge and who's in charge of, you know, different parts of it. So that's that's a premise that we believe on the long term team is really, you know, really kind of likely enough that it's driving a lot of our decisions. And it felt very unhealthy to be to be making that kind of bet without you know, basically like all of the reasoning for what we think was based on this kind of informal reasoning, informal conversations, whiteboardy stuff, you know, Google Docs floating around. And it wasn't really rigorous and it wasn't really in a form that a skeptic could look at and criticize. And so we started this project called Worldview Investigations, where we were just trying to take the most important aspects of this thing that we believed and write them up, even in a very technical kind of long form, but just so any anything so we could get a skeptic's eyes on them and have the skeptic engage with them reasonably, because, you know, it just wasn't working to say, you know, to like go to a random person, say what we believe and try and work it out in conversation. There's just like too much there. It was too hard to advance the hypothesis in the first place. And it was an enormous amount of work. And the worldview investigations team produced these technical reports that I think are phenomenal. And we put them, you know, they're, they're in public now. So there's a report by Joe Carlsmith that is kind of like, what is the amount of computation that you would need to kind of match what the human brain does? What's What's a good guess at that? Because that's an important part of the picture of like, you know, when would you expect to start getting in the ballpark of being able to build AI that's able to massively speed up scientific and technological advancement? And then Ajay Kotra, who you've talked to, wrote this report on biological anchors. So that's like trying to estimate when we would get a very advanced AI that could speed up scientific and technological advancement, when we would get that based on these kind of analogies to human and animal brains. And then Tom Davidson wrote a couple of reports. One of them was like, what should we think about the possibility that that kind of thing could create explosive economic growth another is like what should we believe about the timelines for super advanced ai without knowing much like what should we believe just based on like how much effort has been put in and how much effort will be put in in the future david Rudman wrote a really cool report called modeling the human trajectory that is also about explosive economic growth but but asked this question you know hey if you just take all of human economic history and just draw the line on a chart and try to project it out in a smart way. Where does it go? And his answer was like, well, it goes to infinity this century, you know? So um, really cool reports. I would recommend that anyone who wants to read something really fascinating, I would, I would recommend that they read them, but they are, a lot of them are pretty dense, pretty technical, and it's hard for a, you know, interested layperson to kind of understand them. It's also hard for someone to put all the pieces together because I just I talked about a bunch of reports on different topics. It's not immediately obvious how they all fit together. So that's that's where, you know, that's where it was just trying to drive me crazy that I was like, the picture is crystallizing in my head. I can point to all these reports, but there's nowhere that's just like, all right, here it all is, you know, here's the argument. And so that's that's what the most important century series is. Nice.
0: How is the general story that you're laying out in this in this series? Different from stories that people might have heard before, you know, in, in books like like Superintelligence or, or other other predictions about how the future might go.
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean there's definitely points of commonality. I think like a huge amount of my series is so 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 a book like a book like superintelligence, it's kind of about what, what could happen eventually. And I think the treatment of when it could happen and whether it could be soon is shorter. And so it's like we could build, you know, we could build an AI that is misaligned, and if we do, we have a huge problem for humanity. And so a lot of my series is just arguing, like, this is the century to expect it, or at least, like, the chances are quite high. And a ton of it is about trying to lower the burden of proof, address all the feeling that it would be too crazy for it to happen soon, and then just do a lot of detailed analysis that a lot of it is from, you know, open philanthropy technical reports about just, like, how do you actually estimate when that's happening? You know, and I think I think there are some quick arguments given in, in other sources, but I think it is it is more focused on that. And then I think in terms of the, you know, the overall vibe, I think in addition to the kind of, you know, sort of urgency of like, well, this is now and this is a special time. I think there's an additional thing, which is that a lot of other sources and I think a lot of other EA arguments are very focused on the question, do we go extinct or not? And, you know, certainly extinction or or rather existential risk, but, you know, and certainly that would be very bad. But I think when you just consider like this could be the most important century, this is when we could determine the shape of a future stable galaxy spanning civilization, That does raise a lot of other questions, too. It it does. It does. And it starts making you think, gosh, we're going to build something we're going to build or we could build something this century. And this is our chance to shape what it is, not just to determine, like, if it's okay or not. And so, you know, I think I think that is that is an area where I think we we could use more thought. We could use more discussion of, you know, if we're going to build a big world sooner than we think. What kind of world do we want that to be and how can we get that to happen? So so those are those are some differences. But you know, the biggest I mean the the biggest thing is is really laying out a case and being very argumentative and very, you know, looking at all angles of like the when.
0: Yeah. So one of the first points that you make is that people often respond to the claim that this is the most important century and that lots of things could be transformed by thinking this is kind of a wild claim. Can't I just believe and shouldn't I believe something that's not wild, something that, that's more sensible and, and, and not weird? But you think that kind of no matter how you slice it, we almost necessarily find ourselves at a weird time in history. Uh, why is that? Yeah. So,
1: so first, I just want to acknowledge that that's exactly exactly where I've been coming from for years is just, you know, I would meet people and they would say, well, you know, Holden, why are you, why are you doing all this stuff that kind of like helps make, you know, low income people's lives better? Because, you know, what you should really be doing is working on the AI alignment problem. And because, you know, because we could all go extinct if we have the wrong AI and if we have the right AI, we could get this like wonderful, you know, civilization that stretches across the galaxy. And I would just be like, I don't know, I don't know, I would just I would just say like, I feel like I need I feel like there's a burden of argumentation here. Like we're funding organizations giving out bed nets that have been like shown in randomized controlled trials to improve people's health. And you're telling me it would be a better use of time to like worry about. This thing that would be the most important event in all of history, like happening like pretty much in my lifetime. Or maybe you think we should be preparing like hundreds of years in advance, but that's got its own issues. And I would just yeah, it was just hard to articulate exactly what the problem was. But, you know, now having thought about it more, I would say kind of the problem was like it's it's in some sense a big claim that at initial look seems to need a lot of evidence. And one way to put it, which, you know, I think this this has been put in a piece by Will McCaskill, among other things, is like. So now I've formulated this hypothesis different people would put it different ways I've formulated it as most important century might not be the literally most important might just be like so high up there that you should really pay attention but let's say it's the most important and it's like well there are a lot of centuries and especially if you think we're going to get this galactic civilization there are a lot of centuries so the you know the initial position of saying this is the most important out of all of them well you need to argue for that like that's you yeah. know that's uh <laughs> that's kind of a high burden of proof to overcome so that's one way of thinking about it but there's a lot of ways of thinking about it so another thing i would think is just like Well, you know, for hundreds of years, like before any of us were alive, the economy has been growing at like a few percent a year and you're talking about this explosion in you know growth that takes us to this like you know kind of advanced super advanced civilization and again it's like anytime you talk about well it's always been this way but now it's going to be that way and it's like you need to provide evidence you need to argue that like this is not just a thing you can be like well Holden doesn't it kind of seem like this could happen and so that has always been a blocker for me and it's always been like this stuff is really interesting I'm really fascinated by it it's hard for me to really buy into it and get my head there and so a lot of what we've done with the worldview investigations is examine that intuition and examine different angles of it. And a lot of what I'm trying to do with this series is kind of not only talk about, you know, the fact that Ajaya's report estimates that you would get transformative AI this century, but also talk about all the ways in which that would be a strange event and why we think it's still reasonable to place a good probability on it. And a lot of the series is about that. And so, you know, what a lot of a lot of what I've just kind of learned, I guess, is that when you just zoom out and look at the whole human story or the whole galaxy story, it doesn't look like, well, things have been kind of normal for a long time. And now all these people are saying it's about to change. It looks more like, gosh, we just live on this rocket ship that took off five seconds ago and nobody knows where it's going. And it's all a matter of the time scale and the timeline that you're looking at. So if you're thinking about your lifetime, your parents' lifetime and their parents' lifetime, then you know economic growth has been about two percent a year. And so the world has changed a fair amount every year, but not a huge amount any year. And it just kind of it just kind of if you plot it on a chart, if you plot the world economy on a chart, it just looks on a long chart, it just looks like a, a line going up, just like a very boring line. And you know, and so last year, well last Year was really crazy because of covid. But, you know, most of the years of my life, it's like, well, there have been some cool new computers. But, you know, we don't seem to be on pace for anything really crazy to happen. And then when you zoom out and you just say, what is the what is the story of history to date? And there's a couple ways you could look at it. So one way you could zoom out, and you could say, what is the, the human history? And the human history is the economy in some sense, is that you could think of it as being like a few thousand years old and it's been accelerating. And so it used to grow much slower than now and it's been accelerating and this is actually an incredibly high rate of economic growth by historical standards. It's also the highest it's ever been and you know it's at this kind of like rate that could that could only be sustained so long. And so when you look at a chart of economic growth over the last 5,000 years, it looks like really weird. And it it looks like this, just this line People that's kind of getting like steeper and steeper. Kind of a flat line
0: and then a vertical line. Yeah, exactly. Line, <laughs> yeah. Even on enough,
1: a log yeah. chart, it looks that way. And I, I know every time I show this chart to someone, they're like, did you log it? And, and then I'm like, yes. And they're like, well, log it again. It's just like, it, it looks weird. <laughs> and there's no and there's no way, you can't plot this chart in a way that's not going to make it look weird. Well, anyway, we could get it. There's a way that makes it look a little less weird, but weird in another way. So that's like that's like one way of thinking about it is just like, no we're we're in this strange time of economic acceleration and the few percent a year growth is like a couple hundred years old out of thousands of years and things are very unstable and wacky stuff is happening. And this is a weird time in your history. And then if you zoom out even further, and then, then the story I would tell is I would say, you know, well, you know, the universe is, is about 13 billion, 14 billion years old. Life on earth began a few billion years ago. And then if we do build this kind of galaxy scale civilization, it, it should probably be around for tens of billions of years. So when you're thinking about billions of years and then you're like, humanity is a few millions of years old and you know, the computers are like 70 years old. And then it's just like, oh, space travel. The first space travel was, you know, was less than 100 years ago. So then it it just looks if you try and make a timeline, it's again, you get this thing that just looks like totally busted because all of the interesting events just happen in the same pixel of the timeline. And again, you can try to log it, but it doesn't help. And, you know, it's just we live in a really weird time. And if you think we're ever going to have this Galaxy scale civilization, if you think it 's going to happen, you know that we 're going to start building it any time in the next hundred thousand years, then you have to think that we are among the earliest intelligent life that 's ever existed in the galaxy and that we just live in this really strange time when kind of anything could happen and so it 's that perspective that has kind of made me think you know. We live in a really strange time. Weird stuff is happening. Anything could happen next. And as people trying to make the world go better, we should really be thinking, what is the next crazy thing that's going to happen? Not be thinking, OK, here we are. You know, things happen year to year. How do we how do we I mean, you know, not, not only thinking how do we help people in the here and now, although although I'm glad
0: OpenPhil continues to do that as well. So I guess there's kind of various different ways in which things could play out. So one possibility would be that things go kind of, as, as you're laying out here, that we get increasing economic growth, maybe even accelerating economic growth, and then we do go to space, You know, we, we have AI, the future looks extremely different and, and much bigger, and there's a lot more good stuff going on. It's one path, in which case we're at the beginning of that, you know, out of a timeline of millions or billions of years. So that, that's pretty wild. An alternative would be that we go extinct or we just disappear and none of this stuff happens, in which case a collapse around about now or in the next 200 years, that, that kind of makes this seem like an interesting time in history as well. Maybe the most boring seeming one would be well what if economic growth kind of continues but at an ever slower rate and so the world changes a bit but it's still pretty identifiable in 100 or 500 years time which i think is kind of the view that people by default have which is like the future will be like now but a bit richer or you know they'll have like more interesting phones why is that still wild
1: yeah sure i mean so it's like how how long is that supposed to go on i mean how how long would you say that happens so like there's you know there's different possibilities So, so one one thing that I that I say in the series in one of the posts is that you know the current rate of economic growth it's like it's like almost impossible to imagine that it could last more than another like eighty two hundred years or something which sounds like a lot but you know human civilization has been around for you know for thousands of years only and again we're talking about these billions of years timescales so you know so so it's like so what is what is the idea so is the idea that we're going to stay at the current level of growth then we're going to stop or we're going to like gradually slow down but. At some point we have to hit like zero growth. Like one one way of putting it is like if we're slowing down now and we're never going to speed up again, then we live at the tail end of the fastest economic growth that will ever be, that we will ever see. In, you know, in uh, in millions of years of human existence to date and maybe billions of years of human existence going forward, there were a couple hundred years, a few percent of your economic growth. That was the craziest time of all time. And that's the time we live in.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty interesting. If for some reason, yeah, we're at the point where just like things stagnate for like yeah. reasons that we can't really anticipate <laughs> right now. I guess another argument is just, well, even if we continue growing slowly, even if these changes take a long time in the broader scope of history, This like is still the wildest millennium, if it's not even if it's not the wildest uh, century.
1: Yeah, and that's assuming that I mean. So so if you believe that we're eventually going to kind of build this technologically mature civilization, so that so the vision here, the idea is that you know, and this is something that that does require a bit of explanation and defending, which I do talk about in the series. But you know, the idea is that we could eventually we could eventually have a civilization that spans the galaxy and that kind of is very long lasting and is kind of digital in nature. So you know. The way we live our lives today could be kind of simulated or put into digital form. That's something that needs explanation and defense. But, you know, if you believe it's possible eventually that we'll have this kind of like robust digital civilization that's able to exist in a stable form across the galaxy, if you believe that'll happen eventually, you know, and if eventually means like in 10,000 years or in 100,000 years, then yeah, if you make a timeline of the galaxy, it still looks like we're in the most important pixel or at least or at least in the pixel where that all happened in the pixel where we went from this tiny civilization on this one planet on this one star to this you know to a civilization that was capable of kind of going across the whole galaxy and then it's like well you know do you think that's actually possible and well we could talk about that i mean but one one thing is that we we are kind of for the first time in history as as far as we know we are actually starting to do space travel now and so that's kind of the the initial pump there
0: yeah so not only are we uh, beginning to, to do space travel, like clearly making significant advances in AI, even if we're quite a long way away, but we're talking about and like speculating about all of these ways in which in which the future could be could be radically different. So at least we'll be among the era that kind of first anticipated all of these dramatic changes, even if it takes a thousand years for us to get there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and then another thing that can happen is it could turn out that it's actually just impossible and we'll literally never get there. And I'm making this stuff up about a galactic civilization. And in that case, we just stay on Earth forever. But I basically think there's two wild things about that. One is, again, it was like there was this there was this period of scientific and technological advancement and economic growth. And it was like maybe it was a few thousand years long, but it was it was really, really quite a tiny slice of our history and we're living in it. And two is I just think it's like, I don't know. I think it's like to, to just rule out that we would ever have that galaxy scale civilization to me feels a little weird. In some sense, it's like, you know, by galactic timeline standards, it's like a few seconds ago, we built the first computers and the first spaceships. And you're saying, no, but we'll never we'll never build, <laughs> you know, a civilization that could span the galaxy. And I'm just like, I, I don't know. How would you how would you get there? It just doesn't
0: it, that, that that to me is, is kind of a weird view in its own way. It, it starts to feel like a very strong claim or a very specific claim that would require yeah. a deep understanding. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, one thing we slightly skipped over is just briefly: how long can present growth rates continue without us having to imagine the laws of physics being totally upended? Yeah, I mean, this is total
1: like back of the envelope math, but I, you know, I estimated that eighty two hundred years at the current level of economic growth would be way, way plenty. It would, it would be like you would, you would at that point you would need to be supporting multiple economies, the size of the world economy for every atom in the galaxy. Um, and then if the rate continued, it wouldn't take long for the numbers to get even wilder. And so, uh, you know, so, so, so it's just like, it's, it's so hard to, to imagine that, you know, 10,000 years of this level of growth. I mean, it, it just, it's very hard to imagine how that could be. And if it could be, it would be a very, very strange civilization that was able to pack that much value in per atom. I, I just, it's, it's a little hard to imagine that we'd still be like walking around in the same kind of bodies that we're in now and things like that.
0: Yeah. And that's a bit unintuitive, but I guess that's just the magic of exponential growth where you keep adding. Yeah. Well, I guess what we were, you, what were you assuming like three, four, 5%. I think I was uh, assuming like 2%. I think oh, 2%, I, okay. I have a tendency in these posts to just like make
1: a bunch of assumptions that are just kind of ridiculous that are ridiculous against the direction I'm arguing. And then, and Mm. then kind of say, well, you know, it's still, it's still pretty crazy if you make these very ridiculous assumptions. So I think like when I talked about how long it would take to spread across the galaxy, it's like, I literally took like a spaceship today and just took its speed. Mm. And I was like, well, if we move at that speed, <laughs> how long will it take? That's that's a silly way. to. We're going to go faster than that, obviously, if we ever go across the galaxy. But it's like still, even then, it only takes, you know, a billion and a half years to reach the outer reaches of the galaxy. And that's just a real, again, a really tiny amount of time, if you think that, that we're going to be able to last for, you know, for amounts of time that make sense in galactic context.
0: Yeah, it's a nice example of exponentials being kind of unintuitive to humans that the idea that humanity could continue economic growth, at least in terms of the value that's produced, by two percent a year for ten thousand years doesn't sound particularly strange, especially if, like, we're already saying, well, we're going to spread to the entire galaxy. But it turns out, no, you just you just can't, because that that would require just yeah a, yeah an Earth-sized economy for every single atom.
1: <laughs> so yeah, it's no, a, it's pretty weird, pretty, and and there. this is a good time. I mean, so I, I I picked up that argument from an overcoming bias blog post, and this is a good time to just emphasize really hard that like you know this is a series where I'm pulling together a lot of ideas that are out there in a lot of different places a lot of them are from the technical reports of the worldview investigations team a lot of them been floating around in the ea community forever so i don't want anyone to interpret this as like you know holden's theory that he came up with I'm, i'm i'm trying to you know i'm trying to pull together stuff that people have been talking about for a long time put it where people can read it
0: yeah so you mentioned earlier that initially you were not so keen on on this worldview What's been the timeline of which you've kind of shifted your shifted your mind on this to the point where it's like most of your work on a day to day basis is to some extent guided by the by the possibility of this previously quite outlandish sounding expectation?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I've been kind of known in the community as a skeptic of a lot of this long term stuff for you know that I was for a long time. I think it's it's kind of important not to not to overstate that too much. I mean, you know, I was a skeptic in the sense that I was like running an organization trying to help people give away. Their money as well as possible, and I was like, "Okay, we've got a methodology, we've got a project, we're working on it." No, we're not pivoting the whole thing to analyze AI. I don't even know how we do that. So I, I think it's important not to overstate. It's it's like, okay, if you if I had if I had been a guy who just like went to parties and talked about what seemed cool to me, I probably would have said, "This seems really cool," <laughs> um, and and I care about it, and and I, maybe I would have personally donated. I don't know. But you know, that's different. I mean, I was not ready to to make big professional decisions around this stuff. And that is definitely true. You know, but I, I went to the Singularity Summit like a year after Give All started. I was interested in it. It was an interesting hypothesis. And I wanted to learn more about it. And I always wanted to learn more. But sure. Yeah, I started from a place of like, you know, this is very interesting. But before, you know, before making really high stakes decisions around it, I need more. I need to understand it better. And I don't buy it right now. And so in terms of the, you know, in terms of the trajectory of that a little bit, a lot of stuff has changed. Maybe I'll just start with the timeline. You know, I think what, when we, we started GiveWell in 2007, very shortly after that, I started meeting all the people who are like the very fastest to notice GiveWell and say, this is cool. So really quickly met people who are were, who were into this stuff. And so I was, you know, thinking about this stuff, like, I don't know, a month after, a month after I left my job to start GiveWell or something that like that. And that was 2007. And then Yeah, I mean, we started Open Philanthropy under the name GiveWell Labs in like, I think it was like late 2012. And I think it was in probably 2000. Gosh, I'm not even totally sure I'm getting this right. I I think probably 2015 or 2016 that we started saying, hey, you know, we want to spend money on this stuff. We think this stuff is really serious. And then it's been, you know, probably the last year that we've moved toward and, you know, and I want to spend all my professional time in it. And I want to focus on it. This is this is where I want to put, you know, put the energy that I've got.
0: OK, so that's the that's the timeline. What do you think are kind of the the key driving factors that that caused you to have a significant change in opinion?
1: Yeah, it was, it was a lot of different stuff. You know, I think I mean, one that I've written about is kind of, you know, assuming for a long time, like, hey, it's it's these kind of. This particular set of people that, you know, is talking about this stuff, but it's like the people you would expect to be the experts is not talking about it and kind of getting to better better understand what was going on there and kind of feel that the experts weren't talking about it because they hadn't thought about it, not because they had thought about it and they had like, you know, some detailed... Thing, but more this is this is going to be a whole post in the series. But just, you know, I think I think that someone who studies AI is not studying when super advanced AI is coming. They're studying AI, what it does today, what it can do. That's certainly relevant, but it's not the same thing as, you know, forecasting. It's, it's kind of similarly if you're working on, you know, working on energy technology to reduce carbon emissions, you're not necessarily want to ask about exactly, you know, what do you think of the IPCC projection of climate change and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, there is no IPCC in this case, but the point is, they're different expertises. And so that was that was a big factor was kind of learning that that was a hard thing to learn because it was like I, I, originally I would just talk to my friends who, would, who who were like smart technical people and they would kind of have the same naive objections I had, you know, and and that I hadn't heard good responses to, in my opinion. But it was like I I, I wanted to just see, like, all right, what do the experts actually have here? So that was a big factor. Other factors. You know, I think I've mentioned the thing about just, you know, coming to believe that we're in a wild time and really struggling with the, you know, struggling with the burden of proof argument, which is something that I really focus on a lot. Another really big factor for me was a kind of shift in the nature of the argument. So I think traditionally there's a very similar argument to what I've been making that motivates a lot of effective altruists, but it is different in an important way. And the argument goes, it's much more of a philosophy argument, much less of an empirical argument. The argument goes, you know. The best thing we could do is reduce the risk of an existential catastrophe, or the best thing we could do is increase the probability that humanity builds like a really nice civilization that spans the galaxy. And then now let's look for something that could affect that. And the thing that could is AI. And so now, if there's any reasonable probability, that's what we're going to work on. And that's an argument where a lot of the work is getting done by this kind of philosophical point about valuing you know, having this astronomical valuation on future generations because you're not making an argument that it's going to happen or that it could happen with reasonable probability. You're just saying, well if it did. Um yeah. you know and then so not, and then of course you can get to there not, you can't say not starting
0: there You're, you're, yeah, you're starting, not starting the there. argument with like looking for something else rather than saying it seems like if we look out into the world that this thing could possibly happen quite soon, just exactly. on its own face. Yeah.
1: Exactly. You're not starting there. And then and then you're you're also kind of not ending there either. It's kind it's of kinda like so then it's like the way the argument goes is like someone says to me, Well this would be a really big deal and I go okay it would be so what is that going to happen and they'd be like well I don't know like it seems seems like it could be happening like you know and and it just I don't think that's a terrible argument I really don't but it does feel less compelling Mm -hmm. to me than going kind of the other direction and saying you know let's not worry about exactly how big a deal this would be let's not worry about if you know if causing the whole future to go well is like a hundred times or a thousand times or a kajillion times as good as like saving as many lives as are alive today. Let's not worry about that. Let's just like sit here and contemplate that we could be in the most important century of all time and say, shouldn't we focus on that? Like, shouldn't you have a starting point and saying, shouldn't we focus on that? And it's kind of, I, I've kind of, you know, I've had internal discussions at open philanthropy about why we work on what we work on. And I call them kind of the track one and track two arguments. And track one is like the empirical, like, you know, This is a huge event that is coming, and I don't know exactly how to value it. But even if you value it at like pretty conservatively, even if you just say like, I don't know, preventing an existential catastrophe from AI is 100 times as good as saving all the lives of people on Earth today, then it looks like something we should work on. And then the other direction is saying, no, this is just so astronomically consequential that even a very tiny probability makes it something we should work on. And they're different arguments, but I've never been a person who's incredibly comfortable making a big contrarian bet that is based on that kind of reasoning, the kind of philosophical this is how much value there is and i and i do feel way more conviction and way more buy-in from just saying, you know, i don't know if i've got the values right, i don't know if i've got the population ethics right, but there is something really 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 big that could be happening and we have to zoom out, look at our place in history. See how weird it is, ask what's going to be coming next. That's the most responsible thing for us to do as people trying to help the world. And then we can run the numbers and make sure it pencils, but that's a better starting point for me. And then, sorry, one one more on this point. I just, I also finally want to acknowledge there is just like structural and incentive and personal stuff going into this too. So like there was a point in time when I was trying to, you know, help create an organization that could tell individual donors who didn't know anything where to give. And, you know, it was going to be much more helpful to have something really evidence-backed, explainable, transparent, legible. And that was GiveWell, and that was our mission. That's what I was focused on. And there came a later date when I, you know, had a lot more like, freedom to engage in wild arguments and do really risky stuff. And that was more my professional duty. So it's just like a lot of this affects like how much time I put into it. And what I'm thinking of is my job and what I want to focus on. And I think that's also an underrated thing in these kind of debates is like, it really does matter, like, what is your position in life? And what does it make sense for you to be contemplating and doing? And that has changed for me. And I want to acknowledge that's been a part of this
0: makes sense. Let's talk about some of the specific technologies that you uh, bring up in in this series as things that might be feasible and might be more feasible than than people appreciate and also might have more significant and revolutionary social consequences that people already understand. One that you raise is the idea that we might be able to create an artificial intelligence system that is specialized at generating scientific and technological progress. Yeah, you refer to that targeted AI Somebody amusingly as PASTA, which stands for Process for Automating Scientific and Technological Advancement. What exactly do you imagine this PASTA being able to do?
1: Yeah, the, the basic idea is that if you could imagine sort of like an automated digital scientist, like someone who, or or engineer or entrepreneur, someone who can do, do all the things a person does to advance science and technology, and then you imagine that that kind of digital person could be copied you know, and and could kind of just work in this sort of digital sped up advanced form. You know, if you just imagine that, then you kind of you can pretty fairly easily get to a conclusion that you would see a massive, crazy explosion in the rate of scientific and technological advancement. And that, you know, at that point, it's like you might start thinking something like anything that is scientifically and technologically possible, we will get fairly soon. And a a lot of my argument is like, you know, it's not too hard to imagine that, really, really wild stuff could happen in the next 100,000 years. Stuff about, you know, building stable digital-based civilizations that go across the galaxy. Not too hard to imagine that. The interesting thing is that if we get the right sort of meta technology or the right automated process, then 100,000 years, as you intuitively think of it, could become 10 years.
0: Yeah. I suppose many people might have the reaction that, you know, they understand that machine learning systems can learn to play chess because it's like, it's a very legible kind of game where you can see the result, you can see the outcome they understand why I could learn to play potentially computer games or even this kind of game that GPT-3 plays of guessing what the, what the next word should be. Yeah. But like, isn't, isn't scientific and technological advancement like too complicated? How would you even tell whether you're, whether you're succeeding or what the different moves in the game are? Do you have anything to to say on like, whether this is like more feasible than people understand?
1: Sure. I mean, I would think of it as a difference in degree rather than kind is like how how I kind of think about it. I mean, so, so fundamentally, you know, as, as far as we can tell, it sure looks like this is happening is there's. You know the way that science and technological advancement happen right now is that there are these people with brains, and the brains are like they're pretty small. There's a lot of them, like that. You know, they're they're built out of not very expensive materials in some sort of sense. In the sense, you know, kind of you could think of a brain as kind of being made out of food or something. You know, and so it's not. There's no like incredible, incredibly expensive process that needs to be done to create a brain. And it's like these brains are doing the work. They're doing it. And so it's like, why can't we build something? Could be anything, but I would guess a computer that could, whatever it is our brain is doing, why couldn't we build something that did that? And of course, that's a lot harder than building something that plays chess. It it raises new challenges with how do you train that thing? How do you define success? And probably it has to be a lot more powerful than these computers that play chess, because something that some people don't know is that you know, actually today's most powerful computers, as you know, based on like estimates such as the one that Joel Carlsmith did for Open Philanthropy, you know, it's very rare to see a computer that's like even within range of having the computational power of a human brain right now. And so it's like, sure, to do these hard things that humans do, we're going to need something that's a lot more powerful than what we have now, does more computations, probably. And we're going to need, you know, creativity and ingenuity and figure out how to train it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, it's like we have an existence proof. We have these brains and there's a lot of them. And why can't we build something that fundamentally accomplishes the same thing they're accomplishing?
0: I guess part of the idea is that humans over the course of their development from being children, they learn these skills uh, through experience. So can't we kind of reverse engineer the process by which humans as as they grow to learn how to do science and then put it into a put into a different system?
1: Yeah, exactly. And and I don't I don't know if it's specifically reverse engineering, like a lot of what a lot of what I research looks like today is you just have trial and error. You just have these, you know, you have these systems where if you can show them what success looks like, you don't really need to know anything else. You don't need to think about it's like you can you can build an AI that is world champion at a game that you're that you barely understand yourself, that you barely understand the game. You just have it play the game and you have a method for it knowing whether it's doing well or poorly and it's able to figure that out. So I don't know if it's reverse engineering but the point is there's a lot of different ways to build an AI and the question is just yeah humans humans somehow learn how to do science it's not something that not something that we've been doing for most of our history but somehow we we learn it in the space of a human lifetime learn it pretty quickly so if we could build something else that's able to learn how to do the same thing whether it's in the same way or not you could imagine building an AI that's able to like watch a training video and learn as much from it as a human does as measured by its answers to some test. And that's kind of a measurable thing. So that's kind of an example of what I'm talking about.
0: All right, let's set aside the feasibility uh, for a minute and think about what kind of effects this would ha- have on society if a pasta-like system actually came into being and how long it might might take to have those effects. Yeah, do you want to elaborate on that?
1: Sure. So, so you know, it's it's this basic idea that we're doing this thing today, which is that every year people have more ideas and they create more technologies, and they scale up, and they make cheaper the technologies we already have. And it's like, just imagine if you could automate that. That's the basic intuition. And, you know, I explain it a bit more in the series, but that's the basic intuition is we're, we're doing this thing. We're doing it manually, in a sense. There's There's humans doing it, having ideas and making technologies cheaper and better. And if you could automate that, then you would just expect it to speed up an awful lot. And then the question becomes, you know, Where could science get in 100,000 years? Because maybe that's where it'll get in 10 years or one year or something like that. And so then where, where that, could science get? Yeah, go ahead.
0: That vision kind of relies on the idea that once we've developed an appropriate system, once we've kind of trained it, that the amount of computational you know, ability, the number of processes required to run it isn't so great such that you could run the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of, of actual human scientists on, on, on these systems. Do you think that that is like very likely to be the, the case or is that kind of a question mark?
1: Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to get off the ground. So if you had if you had like one sort of you know, thing that was automated that could do what a human could do, but it costs like the entire world economy to run that thing for a year, then yeah, the things I'm talking about would not happen. And and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the analysis that is done in like the biological anchors report is about cost. And it is about, you know, when will we get to the point where it's like an imaginable amount of money, like a government might actually do this. It might it might actually be affordable to, you know, to create these things. It might be economic. It might have returns. And the way I think you need to get off the ground. But But one thing that I would say is that you know, when you're using these deep learning systems that learn by trial and error, it takes like, in some sense, making the first one or or training it costs an enormous amount of money and computation compared to like using it after you have it. So it's like, you know, AlphaGo, which is the system that plays the board game Go. You know, it, it played like an enormous—I don't know how many number but an enormous number of Go games with itself to kind of get from being really terrible at Go to being really great at Go. And that took an enormous amount of money and computation compared to once it was done, you could make as many copies as you want. I mean, you could make a bunch of copies and they would all be able to play Go. And it's like for the amount of money and computation you spent just creating that first one and training it, you could then run a very large number of them. And so the, so the basic idea is you look at this biological anchorage report and you say, when will it be affordable in some sense? Like affordable might mean $100 billion. It might be something that, you know, a government would kind of stretch to do. But, you know, when it would be affordable in some sense to, you know, to train a single kind of automated scientist, because that day that that is done, it is now also affordable to run a large number of automated scientists. Now, how large a number? Well, I mean, at that point, I would I would think a large enough number that those automated scientists are going to be able to further bring the cost down and that that's where you get into this like feedback loop dynamic that is that is one of the focuses of the series and has also been discussed in uh you know the reports by Tom Davidson and David Rudman on economic growth and how it could become explosive
0: yeah so yeah, I slightly interrupted you on the, on the social effects that this might have. But so it's in broad strokes, you're compressing the discovery of lots of different kind of natural laws or technologies or engineering issues into a very fast time period such that so it's us living our lives, you know, we expect that year after year, there's going to be some more interesting products available in the market. But even over the course of an entire human lifetime, things are still recognizable. But here you would just have this like sudden flood of insights that would allow you to to potentially do new things. And I guess maybe there'll be a bit of a delay to having them flow through to products or actually get applied in the world, but it would be like an extremely like bizarre and out of equilibrium situation.
1: Yeah, that's how I feel. And then and then and then you start to ask, all right, so what technologies could we develop? And it's like there's kind of two answers. One answer is like, oh, my God, I have no idea. And like, wow, like maybe that's enough. Like Maybe maybe we should just say if we could develop that kind of system this century, then we should think of this as the most important century or one of the most important centuries. We should just be freaking out about this possibility because like I don't like I have lost the script once the ability we've got the ability to automate science to get to where we might be going in one hundred thousand years, but to get there in 10 years, one year. Gosh, like just that's we should just really worry about that and and that should be what we're spending our time and energy on like what could happen there but if you want to get specific about it you know I, what i like to do is i like to i like to have like one or two concrete examples of specific stuff so that you could see just how crazy you could get and then think to yourself, you know, it could probably get even crazier than that if there's other stuff we haven't thought of. And so a particular kind of technology that I focus on a lot in the series is this idea of digital people. And I focus on it because it's a very simple idea. My guess is it will eventually be feasible. It's the kind of thing that science would get us to in 100,000 years. And it, it would be just so radical. It would just change everything about the world. And it would it would get us to the you know, probably maybe get us to the kind of world that I've been talking about this very, you know, this very stable digital galaxy scale civilization.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about these uh these digital people which is this potentially next revolutionary follow up option. Yeah, what what do you mean by digital people?
1: Yeah, so the basic idea of a digital person is like a digital simulation of a person. So it's just it's really like if you just take you know, one of these video games, like The Sims, or Cyberpunk. you know, I, I use the example of a, of a football game because because I was able to get these different pictures of of this football player Jerry Rice as every year they put out a new Madden you know video game, and so so Jerry Rice looks a little more realistic every year. It's like you have you know you have these like video game simulations of people, and if you just imagine it getting more and more realistic until you have a perfect simulation, so you you know you imagine like a a video game that has a character called Holden and just does everything exactly how Holden would in response to whatever happens. That's it. That's what a digital person is. So it's it's a fairly simple idea and it's just in some ways is a is a is a very far out extrapolation of stuff we're already doing, which is what we're already kind of like simulating these these characters.
0: I guess that that'd be one way to look at it. I guess The way I've usually heard it discussed or introduced is the idea that, well, we have these brains and they're doing calculations. And couldn't we eventually figure out how to basically do all of the same calculations that the brain is doing in a a simulation of the brain moving around?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would have a simulated brain in a simulated environment. And um, that is another. Yeah, absolutely. That's another way to think of it.
0: So. This is kind of a, a fairly out there technology. The idea that we would be, you know, able to reproduce like a full human being, or at least like the, the the most important parts of a human being, running on a server. I think that that is likely to be to be possible.
1: I mean, I think it's it's kind of similar to what I said before. Is we we have this existence proof. We have these brains. There's lots of them, you know, and and all we're trying to do is is kind of build a computer program that can process information just how a brain would. And so if you kind of imagine like a really expensive and dumb way of doing it would be to just simulate the brain in all its detail, just simulate everything that's going on in the brain. You know, there may just be smarter and easier ways to do it where you capture the level of abstraction that matters. So maybe it doesn't matter what every single molecule in the brain is doing. Maybe a lot of that stuff is kind of random. And what really, you know, what really is going on that's interesting or important or doing computational work in the brain is maybe the, you know, the neurons firing and and some other stuff. And, you know, you could simulate that. So but basically there's there's this process going on. It's going on in a pretty small physical space. We have tons of examples of it. We can literally study animal brains. We could just like we do. I mean, neuroscientists just pick them apart and try to study them and see what's going on inside them. And so I'm not saying we're close to being able to do this, but when I try to think about like. Why would it be impossible? Why would it be impossible to build an artifact, to build a digital artifact or a computer that's processing information just how a brain would? And, you know, I guess I just come up empty and I can't, prove it i can't prove that this is possible i think this is one of the things that open phil hasn't looked into because we generally do find it intuitive and haven't had a ton of pushback on it but that might have something to do with you know which particular skeptics we're encountering and it's something we could certainly do a more in-depth investigation of in the future yeah but the basic argument is just it's it's here it's all around us why wouldn't we be able to you know to kind of simulate it at some point in time
0: Are you envisaging these digital people as, you know, being conscious like you and me, or or is it more like an automaton situation?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that's come up is when, you know, when when I describe this kind of idea of of a world of digital people, a lot of people have the intuition, well, you know, even if digital people were able to act just like real people, they wouldn't count morally the same way they wouldn't have feelings they wouldn't have experiences they wouldn't be conscious we shouldn't care about them and that's an intuition that i disagree with it's not a huge focus of the series but i do write about it you know and and my understanding from you know i I think basically if, if you dig all the way into philosophy of mind and think about like what what consciousness is this is something we're all very confused about no one has the answer to that but i think in in general you know there isn't a great reason to think that whatever consciousness is, that it crucially relies on being made out of neurons instead of being made out of microchips or whatever. And, And one way of thinking about this is like, you know, I think I'm conscious. And why do I think that? And is the fact that I think I'm conscious, is that connected to the actual truth of me being conscious? Because the thing that makes me think I'm conscious has nothing to do with whether my brain is made out of neurons. If you made a digital copy of me and you said, hey, Holden, are you conscious? that thing would say yes of course i am for the same exact reason i'm doing it it would be processing all the same information it'd be considering all the same evidence and it would say yes and so so there's this intuition that whatever it is consciousness is if we believe it's what's causing us to think we're conscious then it seems like it's something about the software our brain is running or the algorithm it's doing or the information it's processing. It's not something about the material the brain is made of, because if you change that material, you wouldn't get different answers. You wouldn't get different beliefs. So that's that's the intuition. I'm not going to go into it a ton more than that. There is a there's kind of a thought experiment that's kind of, you know, interesting that they got from David Chalmers, where you you imagine that if you you took your brain, and you just replaced one neuron with like a digital signal transmitter that just fired in all the same exact ways that you wouldn't notice anything changing. You couldn't notice anything changing because your brain would be doing all the same things and you'd be reaching all the same conclusions. You'd be having all the same thoughts. And then if you replaced another one, you wouldn't notice anything. And if you replaced them all, you wouldn't notice anything. And so so anyway, so I think there are some arguments out there. It's not not a huge focus of the series. Um, and I don't have a lot more to say about it for now, but I think it is the better bet that if we had digital people that were acting just like us and and, and the brains were, were doing the same, the digital brains were doing the same thing as our brains, that we we should care about them and we should think of them as we should think of them as people and we probably would so even if you know even if they weren't because conscious, they would act, yeah I mean yeah well we'd be <laughs> they, friends they with would them. complain we, we'd talk the same way that that we, we do. would relate to them like it would just be you know it, there are people I've never met and it, they would just be like any other people I've never met but I could have video calls with them and phone calls with them and so you know we probably will and should care about what happens to them and even if we don't it only changes some of the conclusions but but I basically think the digital people would be people too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the argument that, that jumps to mind for me is if you're saying, well, you know, to be, to be people, to be conscious, to, to have value, it has to be run on meat. It has to be run on these cells, like with these electrical charges going back and forth would be like, did evolution just like happen to stumble on the, like the one material yeah. that, that could do this? Like evolution presumably didn't choose to use this particular design because you'd be conscious. So like, why would there be this coincidence that we have the, like one material out of all of the different materials that can do these calculations <laughs> that yeah. produces more value? That's
1: an interesting way of thinking of it. I mean, if I were to kind of like devil's advocate, I would be like, well, maybe every material has its own kind of consciousness and we only care about the kind that's like our kind or something. But then but then that would be an interesting question why we only care about our kind.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Setting aside the consciousness issue for now. Yeah, this this idea of digital people kind of appear regularly in movies and and computer games and so on. But the designers of these uh, of this fiction don't, don't take it to what I would think is the is the natural conclusion, which is that society would be just massively completely upended by this. What are the most important novel properties of running human minds as software rather than as these difficult physical systems that we don't know how to intervene in.
1: Yeah, so so a lot of times when people talk about digital people, or often the term used is, is mind uploads, which I, you know I, I chose to go with digital people for for reasons I go into, but are not that interesting. You know, a lot of times people just focus on the immortality bit. They're just like, well, now you're digital, so you can live forever because there's no reason you have to age because you're virtual. And, you know, I mean, I think that's that's kind of interesting. I think it's it's really not. I mean, you know, I like thinking about ways the whole world could be just like radically transformed. And that, I think, is is smaller than a lot of the things that could come of digital people. And so, you know, when you just imagine just start with a very simple idea. Just imagine that we were virtual. Just imagine that we, you know, we could do all the things with us that we could do with software. And what are some things, what are some things that you can do with virtual people today? Like these, these video game characters that you can't do with, with you know, with real people and some things you can do. So one, you can you can run them at different speeds, which you can basically do with, you know, software tends to have that property. You can copy them, make like kind of perfect copies of them starting from any state. Software tends to have that property. You can put them in whatever virtual environment you can code up. So if you have, you know, a virtual football player, you could put them in a virtual tennis match or whatever. You know, you kind of have this complete control over, over what environment they're in. It's, it's just whatever you can code, you know. And so those are those are key properties. And I think you just take those three properties and, the, you know, the kind of implications I've listed. So one is the especially the copying I think would mean that there's there's this you know enormous amount of productivity that becomes possible, this self accelerating feedback loop of you know more people have more ideas and then the more ideas lead to more resources and then the more resources lead to more people and so you know just being able to to copy people it's like you could you know instead of an organization being like, well, we need to do this project, we need to hire a bunch of people and train them. they might just take whoever's already best at doing whatever they need done make as many copies of them as they need make each copy start from a state where they're just coming back from a vacation they're really excited to get to work and a lot of this stuff is is uh, laid out in a lot more detail in like in in the book of age of m by robin Hanson. you know so there's the productivity aspects there's this idea of kind of having an easier ability to kind of do reflection and learning about human nature and behavior so You know, I'm I'm always been very interested in social science, in reading social science papers. That's my background, you know, from GiveWell is kind of saying, you know, do bed nets really help people? Does nutrition really help people? And it's really hard to answer questions like that because you you have some people who got good nutrition and some people got bad nutrition and you're trying to see how well they're doing. And the problem is that there's lots of things that are different between people who get good nutrition, and people who get bad nutrition. Generally, people who get good nutrition tend to be wealthier and more educated and all kinds of things. And so what do you always wish you could learn? The study you wish you could read is one where there were a bunch of actual copies of the same person. And some of them got the intervention, some didn't. And now we see how that changes. But you can't do that until you can, until you have digital people. The closest thing right now is a randomized controlled trial. Those are very expensive. They take a long time. You need a large number of people because you're not actually using copies of the same person. So you're hoping the randomization washes out with the large numbers. So yeah, the ability to learn from the experiences of actual copies of people as they try different things and do different things, that could be big. And and another thing you could do, There's all this stuff I wish I had time to read and think about and do. I wish I could just try spending an entire three years of my life meditating and seeing how that changes me. But like, I just have to make all these tough choices about how to use my time. But you could have people, you know, making copies of themselves to try all these different things, learn all these different things, study these different things, explain them back to themselves, essentially. And so I think there's this whole there's this whole, you know, set of ways in which, you know, I would say over the last few hundred years, we've made much more impressive progress at like understanding the world than understanding ourselves, uh, understanding human nature and behavior. I think that could change with digital people. Then there's this, you know, this virtual reality aspect where, you know, like I said, I mean, you could, you could kind of have digital people experiencing whatever, whatever, that could be a really good or a really bad thing. Like, you know, it just, if, if you had, if, if you didn't have human rights for digital people and they were at the mercy of whoever's running their environment, then they could be manipulated, it's they could be tortured, it could be really, really dark. If, you know, if it was well done, you know, there's no need that we we need to have aging or death or disease or violence, you know, or any kind of force, you know, you could have people just changing their appearance, appearing however they wanted to, experiencing whatever they wanted to. And then I think the the big ones for kind of the purpose of the series have to do with the stable galaxy scale civilization. So I think, you know, if you are digital people, then you can run anywhere you can run a computer. And you could probably run a computer anywhere that you can find like metal energy and, you know, some other stuff like like you need, you know, you need some something to cool it. But um, everything you need, you can find just all over space. You don't need to find this wonderful planet that's just like Earth that has the right temperature, has the right amount of water. You could basically, you know, anywhere you can get a bunch of metal and a bunch of solar panels and build these computers, you could have digital people there. So you could have them at every star, every solar system. And then, you know, you could have this if, if you wanted, which I think in many ways is a scary idea rather than a good idea. If you wanted to kind of send out a space probe that creates this virtual civilization in another solar system, you could have that civilization kind of following whatever rules you wanted. You could have this virtual environment that, you know, if you're the president and you want your digital copy to be the president, then every time your digital copy loses an election, it could just reset you know, it could be programmed to do that or, or it could be programmed to, you know, respond to any kind of unexpected error with just like a, a rolling back of a step and rerunning, rerunning the simulation. So, you know, it's, it's, again, just imagining people as software, we have a lot more control over software than we have over our physical environment. And that's really the crux of it is, is when you imagine technology reaching its limit, you just imagine us getting more and more control over our environment and in the limit, or even just literally, if we were software, that means being able to have human lives going on basically anywhere in the galaxy. And in a way that is just, it could be stable. It could be set up so that there's certain values and certain things about the world that persist.
0: Yeah. So yeah, just, just going back to the to, to some of the first comments, you could have people experience anything, which means that you know these digital people they could just have the best meal of their life and then just do it again and again and again because there aren't like any any limits on the on the amount that they can eat, for example, or the, or the things that they can do. Or you could just you know, they don't have to simulate the food; just see what kind of nerves are stimulated by their favorite food and just push a button and and, and they can feel that. You would have gotten rid of disease, basically, because presumably in this simulation, you'd be able to like, edit out anything that was, that was problematic or just revert back to the, to the pre-disease state. I guess potentially you could have like new health issues that relate to the computers or something. <laughs> but you would have removed a lot of the problems in the world that people deal with because they predate us and we just don't know how to, how to, how to change the world in order to fix it. You could also just like, make the environments incredibly pleasant. I do, I do
1: want to cut in for one second there. I think sure. I, I agree with everything you said. I do want to caution a little bit that I think... I think a lot of people who talk about these topics, they're transhumanists and they're very enthusiastic and it's all with an air of enthusiasm. And it's all under this, you know, this assumption that technology is great and more of it is great and everything's gonna be great. And let's talk about all the ways things will be great. And I just, you know, I, I actually like kind of just waffle a lot on this. But I think it's important to recognize that like you know rather than take a position on whether it be great or whether it be terrible because i think a lot of a lot of non-transhumanists just hear this stuff and they think it's the most horrifying thing they've ever heard rather than take a position either way on this i just want to be like it could be either and i think that's that's one of the things i've had trouble with with this series is just kind of Everyone wants to read everything as, you know, this is going to happen. It's going to be awesome. This is going to happen. It's going to be terrible. And I'm really, 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 I've had trouble convincing people of this. And I have to say this over and over again in the series. I'm really not saying either one. It really could be either. And, and I and I, you know, when I think it could be the most important century, I'm not thinking, woohoo, it could be the most important century. We'll never have disease. And I'm also thinking, oh, no, it'll be the most important century. Everything's going to be bad. And it's going to be worse than it was. I'm just thinking like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Oh, geez. Like anything could happen. It could be the best. It could be the worst. Geez, we're not ready for this. And we really need to think about this and we really need to think how this could go. And it could go really well. It could go really poorly. We need to think about how how to start to get a grip on this. So I think that's that's important as as the the way I'm trying to approach this stuff, which I, I think is is hard for a lot of, of people to not be thinking, is this going to be good or bad? Well, I think it is good to think it could be good or bad. It's good to recognize it could be either.
0: Yeah, definitely. So yeah, another important effect that it could have, which would affect human human beings especially, is that like at the moment we only have one Beyonce, as you point out in one of these blog posts. But in this world, we can just create lots of copies of Beyonce and these different copies of Beyonce can produce many different albums and tend to go into all of these different styles of music and then potentially dominate some non-trivial fraction of the entire music industry in a way that a single person person can't. So the fact that you can create copies of people who are exceptional in particular respects I guess it would affect like the employment opportunities for, I suppose, flesh and blood humans who, who who don't have these abilities and can't go through these like very long training processes and then continue working after that. Do you want to talk about kind of the economic effects that this might have? I mean, the economic effects seem really hard to
1: say much meaningful about, other than the economy yeah. itself would explode, and or it might not explode if it already exploded from the from the previous, you know, from the AI or something. But it, you know, there would be a lot there would be a lot of economy is like the main thing I would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, it actually could. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the case that flesh and blood humans. They might have trouble finding a job, but it might turn out that like if you have a hundred dollars in your bank account that you're now like just unimaginably wealthy you know by digital people's standards because there's so much productivity there's so much of everything that you know that 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 money you have or or whatever it's a hundred dollars in today's dollars so you 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 you've had it in there in some way that it's keeping up with inflation <laughs> right. or getting you know getting returns um keeping up with the stock market but you know it might it might turn out that like the flesh and blood humans are just like unbelievably rich because they have these you know they have these existing claims and then everything gets cheaper so it's really hard to say what happens the thing the thing that happens economically is just that there's there's just so much
0: yeah Another implication this has is that like so much will be going on that if there's a way for things to go very badly, then that could come quite quickly by human timescales because because everything could just be running so much more quickly on these computers. Eventually, like as the the technology advances, that all of history is occurring in a single human lifetime in, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess in terms of thinking like very big picture about how this could affect, you know, the galaxy scale civilization, the main issue there is, I suppose, the error correction or the way that you can just prevent significant drift with like resetting or just having particular digital people who are known to like have very specific values that never change and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that you kind of imagine or that I kind of imagine is like if if you just if today we develop digital people, and all of a sudden we had the ability to like, you know, I mean, it, we would start by kind of having these people interacting with them coming to see them as people caring about what they do, and the population would grow. And at some point, Let's say, you know, if they want to have their own kids or their own friends or their own copies and they want to go into space. And then the, you know, the crazy thing is that whoever's kind of making decisions about what kinds of computers to build and send into space, you know, that person could be deciding, hey, we're just going to send off something that starts from today's civilization and goes wherever it goes. Or they could be saying, we want to make sure it preserves human rights no matter what. And we're going to make sure the code is consistent with that. Or we want to make sure it preserves like this person as president no matter what. And the code will be consistent with that. And it's just like, there's just a lot of stuff That whoever is building these things and, and programming these things could be deciding that that decision lasts for like, you know, billions of years because it it's affecting these space probes that go out into space and then build their own computers that build their own computers. And that's the scary thing. And that's that's the thing where you could you could imagine just such a just a huge range of variation where, you know, if that was done really thoughtfully and reflectively and in the best way possible versus if that was done in this, you know, sort of, I don't know, just like random thoughtless people saying, well, I want to be president, you know, just like just massively different futures for the galaxy that last a very long time and affect a very large number of people. And that's what, you know, that's what I find so kind of breathtaking and and scary about the whole thing.
0: Yeah. So I could imagine that there's some listeners out there who are thinking, I subscribe to this podcast because I like wanted to improve the world and learn how to have more impact with my career. And like, who the hell are these two people that they're, yeah. they're talking about, like putting people <laughs> on the computers and like sending them into space and like turning asteroids into, <laughs> into solar panels? Well, yeah, what, what's, what's maybe your response to people who are like, this is like a cool story, mate, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't, yeah, can't we like get back to the real world?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I, I've i been there for sure. I mean, you know, because my history is that I, I spent, you know, the first part of my career co-founding GiveWell, which is, you know, entirely focused on these like straightforward ways of helping people in poor countries by improving health and well-being, distributing proven interventions like bed nets and deworming pills for children with intestinal parasites. I mean, that's that's where I'm coming from. That's where I started. That's what motivates me. That's what I'm interested in. You know one of the things that I say in the in the description of my blog is it's about avant-garde effective altruism so hmm. so the analogy for me would be if you first if you hear, hear jazz, you know, you might hear like Louis Armstrong and you might think that sounds great. I want to get into jazz. And then if you meet people who spent like their entire life listening to jazz, a lot of their favorite music, you're just gonna be like, what the hell is that? Um, <laughs> that's not music. That's not jazz. What is that? Um, that's just like yeah. noise. That's just like someone that like kind of screeching into a horn or something. And And it's, you know, Avant-garde effective altruism is a similar feel for me. It's just like, you know, I started by saying, hey, gosh, like people are dying of malaria and a $5 bed net can prevent it. And I'm really interested in using my career to prevent that. But I'm. I'm kind of greedy about it, and I and I kind of you know over the years I'd always be like, but could we do even better? Is there a yeah. way we could help even more people? Well, <laughs> maybe instead of helping more people, we could help more persons, like like things that aren't people but that we should still care about. You know, animals—they're having a terrible time on factory farms, and and they're they're being treated horribly. And what if what if someday we'll decide that animals are like us and and we should care about them? And wouldn't that be horrible? Wouldn't it be great if we did something about it today? And just like pushing and pushing and pushing and thinking about it, and I think that. That is a lot of what your audience likes to do. That's a lot of what I like to do. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of what I am trying to do is, is bring people along that avant-garde effect altruism route and say, if you just keep pushing and pushing, where do you go? And in my opinion, where you go is, you know, is, yeah, of course, it's, it's wild to talk about digital people living on other stars in like weird virtual environments that are designed to do certain things. Of course, it's weird. But if it's the kind of thing that we think will eventually happen or could eventually happen, then most of the people we can help are just future people who are digital people. And if you say, well, I don't care about them because they're future people, I would say, gosh, like that didn't sound very good. And and you may regret <laughs> saying that uh, or, or history may not judge you kindly for saying I don't care about people who are future people. I don't care about people who are digital people like they're digital. I'm made out of cells. Um, and I'm just, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, there, there's a lot of philosophical debates to be had here, but but I've definitely reached a conclusion that it's at least pretty dicey to say that kind of thing. And so I think you start from, I want fewer people to die from malaria. And I think it actually is logical. And you do get to, well, I care about all people. I care about future people. I care about digital people. And I really care what happens to them. And, you know, there is an awful, awful, huge stakes for a huge, huge, huge number of digital people in this thing that could be happening in this century. And that is something that I need to get a grip on because the stakes are
0: enormous. Or at least, or at least that someone should be getting a grip on. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll come back to, to some other objections and, and ways that this whole view could be could be totally misguided later on. But for now, we'll, we'll carry on inside this worldview. Okay. So next in the series, you have a quite lengthy discussion, a four-part discussion about when we might expect different levels of progress in artificial intelligence or different kinds of artificial intelligence capabilities. We've talked about that a number of times on, on the show before, most recently, I guess, with Ajaya Kotra, your, your colleague who wrote this report that influenced your thinking quite a bit back in January. So we won't, won't rehash the, the full thing here one point you made, which I was excited to hear a bit more about, was um, where our intuitions typically come from regarding what we expect to see as AI gets kind of closer and closer to different milestones. So there's lots of like different kind of comparisons or benchmarks that we might intuitively use as reference points. Like we could potentially imagine AI increasing in inability like like species do, say from like ants to mice to, to ravens and then to to primates and, and so on. Or the thing we might have in mind is that we would expect an AI to act like a one-year-old and then like a two-year-old and then a three-year-old. Or possibly it could, uh, you say, we might imagine that AIs would become capable of doing what a person could do in one second and then what a human can do in 10 seconds and so on. And interestingly, like all of these have some like intuitive plausibility to them, but they potentially have very, very different implications. And it's possible that all of them are wrong. (laughs) So yeah, which of any of these do you think we should actually kind of use as a guide to our future expectations?
1: Well, I don't really know which one we should use as a guide, but that's a lot of my point is I think, I think a lot of people like just have one in their head and they're very confident in it. And I think a a particularly common one, because I think it's kind of the most anthropomorphized and the most like, I don't know, it's, it's like this, it's like we have AI systems that they they can do the low paying jobs, then they can do the medium paying jobs, then they can do the high Hmm. paying jobs. Um, (laughs) And it's like, gosh, that would be like really polite way for AI to develop. It would just fit right into our you know, our economy's valuations on our these valuations on people and our opinions of what kind of work is valuable. And I think I think that's when people talk about, you know, unemployment. They're just like they're just assuming they're just like, well, the, the people right now who aren't paid very much, those are going to be all the people who are unemployed. And we'll have to wait for the AI to catch up to the people who are paid a lot right now. It's just like, you know, I do think that's a common intuition that people have. and And a lot of what I wanted to point out is just like, we don't know how this is going to go. And and how this goes could be a lot more just like sudden. So a lot of the ones you said, I think are just it's just going to be like, all right, now it's an ant. How would we even know that? Is, like, in my opinion, <laughs> it could already be an ant level intelligence because yeah. we don't we don't have like the hardware we don't have. We can't have like we, we can't build things that can like do what ants do in the physical world. And we wouldn't particularly want to. So it's just like hard to know if you're looking at like an ant brain level A.I. or a honeybee level A.I. or a mouse brain level A.I., We've tried a little bit to kind of compare what A.I.s can do to what very simple animals can do. There's a report by uh, by Costa on trying to compare like A.I.s to honeybees on learning from a few examples. But it's really all inconclusive stuff. And it's like that's the whole kind of point is it might it might just happen in a way that's surprising and quick and weird. Where like the jump from like chimp brain to human brain could be kind of a small jump, but could be a really big deal. So anyway, I mean, if I if I had to guess one, I I would kind of go with the I would kind of go with the like, we don't yet have an AI that could probably do whatever a human can do in one second. But I would kind of imagine that that will be like once we're training human sized models, which we're not yet, that would be the kind of thing you might expect to see us getting closer to. And then you might get closer to things that a human could do in 10 seconds or 100 seconds. And, you know, I think that that where that would put us now is we're just not at human level yet. And so you just wouldn't be seeing, you just wouldn't be able to make much of what you see yet, except to
0: say, you know, maybe make like lower animal
1: comparisons or simpler animal comparisons.
0: Yeah. I thought you might be almost even harsher on all of these comparisons because our experience seems to be that, you know, ML systems can do some things that we find incredibly hard and that like no species of animal can really do. They they, they just completely master. And then there's other stuff that we think is trivial that, that they can't do at all. So it seems like we just can't really predict very well what capabilities might come at what stage and like what would be precursors to other things. Cause it's just, it's so different than like the stuff that we're used to.
1: Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm definitely not saying it's going to happen overnight. That's not the point I'm trying to make. So I think, I think like, you know, before we have this super transformative AI that could automate science or whatever, we'll probably be noticing that other crazy stuff is happening and that AIs are getting more and more capable and economically relevant. Like I don't, I don't think we're gonna, it's going to be like no warning. I don't think it's going to be overnight. Although I can't totally rule that out either. But what I do think is like it might simultaneously be the case that it's too early to really feel the trend today and that a few decades could be plenty. And one way of thinking about that is like, you know, the whole – the whole field of AI is only a few decades old. It's only what like you know sixty three years old or something sixty four years old as of as of this recording and so if you imagine you know and we've gone from these you know these computers that could barely do anything to these image recognition models these audio recognition models that are pretty you know can compete with humans at a lot of things at least in kind of a you know experimental laboratory type setting and so it just you know an analogy that i that I use at one point is is the covid pandemic where it's like It wasn't like it happened completely overnight, but there was an early phase where you could start to see it coming. You could start to see the important trends, but there weren't any school closures. There weren't any full hospitals. And that's, I think, kind of maybe where we are right now with AI, where it's like you can start to think about the trends and you can start to see where it's all going, but you haven't started to feel it yet. But just because you haven't started to feel it yet, I mean, a few decades is a long time.
0: Yeah. I think people, including me, have this intuitive a sense that things happen gradually. And so you would have a technology that initially has like small social impacts, and then it will have a bit more social impact than that, a bit more than that, and it'll be like quite linear in a sense. But what's kind of the case that we should expect to have like quite a non-linear impact on society, where it goes from like nothing to to a lot, like faster than you would expect? Yeah, faster than you would expect. Again, not overnight, but maybe over the
1: course of decades. And, um, you know, the the case would just be that that that's what accelerating economic growth looks like. And that's what accelerating economic growth is. And if you just, you know, this report by David Rudman, the modeling the human trajectory report, you know, that came out of I mean, a lot of a lot of what I was interested in at the time is I was thinking about this Robin Hansen analysis of this sum of exponentials where he's, he's trying to just look at all of economic history and extrapolate where it's going next. And I wasn't really convinced it had been done in the best way. And David's a person who I think is really smart about this sort of thing. And so I just said, David, if you just like, if I just like kind of handed you this economy and I was just like, I don't want you to like, think about AI. I just want to like, I'm just handing you this economy and saying like, where's this going? Where would you say this goes next? And he kind of just did this, you know, in some ways, I mean, it, there's a lot of math in there, but it's a, it's a conceptually pretty simple extrapolation that says, you know, this thing just accelerates and gets faster and faster and goes to infinity by the end of the century. It can't literally go to infinity, but it goes to wherever the limits are or hit some other bottleneck. And and we're in just this temporary period where it's like slowed down for what's kind of a heartbeat in in context. If you look at the whole history, it's just like we're on a temporary slowdown and it could accelerate again. So the, So the case is that we are used to what's called constant exponential economic growth And that feels like it feels. And accelerating economic growth feels more explosive and chaotic and would be faster. And we just have to get back on trend. I'm not saying that as I hope we get back on trend. I'm just saying if we get back on trend, then, you know, then things will just move in a really crazy fast way. And, you know, I have a a chart in uh, in the second piece in the series called The Duplicator that just has like the projection of what accelerating versus constant growth looks like from here. And it's just a, a line going straight and a line just going to the moon.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess looking at it another, like slightly more concrete way, when we look at things that are, that change in the world, so some things do just change linearly, but then there's others. Like I guess most clearly with COVID, it was spreading at an exponential rate. So you get this very sudden shift from the rates are very low to the, to the rates are very high, and suddenly you have to change change all of your your behaviour. I guess in the economy you can get other cases where something is more expensive than the alternative and then very quickly it becomes cheaper than the alternative because it's gone like i guess with solar panels you see this that it used to be 100 times more expensive than the alternative then it's like competitive and then quite quickly it, it falls below and then I suppose in other systems you, you have this example of water boiling, where, you know, the, the temperature keeps going, there's, there's this like underlying factor, which is the temperature. But if what you're thinking about what you're focusing on is like, is the water bubbling, then like as the water gets hotter and hotter and hotter, there's no bubbling at all until very suddenly, it starts bubbling a lot. And that's because you were tracking this surface, I guess, property of it rather than kind of the underlying trend that was actually going to drive and cause the, yeah. the, the, the effect. Yeah, do you want to discuss at all, like how how those analogies might apply to the artificial
1: intelligence case? Well, I think the thing you said about the cost comparison seems right. I mean, it's it's kind of the question is like, you know, when does an AI version of something become better than like hiring someone to do it? And I don't expect it to happen all at once for every task, but it just because humans are the underlying thing powering the whole economy and powering innovation, you can get an especially explosive dynamic and you can get back to accelerating growth at the point where, you know certain key things that humans are doing, particularly innovation, can be done by AIs. And so the question is like, yeah, like at some point there are certain things humans do that no AI could ever do, no matter how you did it. At another point, maybe you could kind of get one AI to do it, but it would take all the money you have. At another point, it actually becomes like, you know, I'd rather just build more servers than hire more people. And that's, you know, it's not instant. It's not overnight you know, as you get closer to the threshold, you start to see signs. That's true of water boiling and that's true of COVID. But it it's so it's it, it, the claim is not that this is going to happen overnight. The claim is that this is going to happen faster than it feels like it's going to happen. I think it's also good to, to talk a little bit about exponential growth for a second, because I think this is actually a bit of a misconception. It's true that exponential growth is hard to imagine and it often moves faster than you think. And that is like important when we talk about like you know, how the rate of economic growth today would not be able to be sustained for more than another, like, you know, few thousand years. However, you know, today's rate of exponential growth is not going anywhere that crazy this century, in my opinion, if it just stays where it is 2% growth for the rest of the century. I don't know. What is that? That'd be like, that would be like our economy would be, well, for the rest of the century, our economy would be like 4x the size at the end of the century. You know, it's not It's not going anywhere that crazy. And I think some people will make the argument. And I think you even even kind of can get this vibe from I don't know if it's from Kurzweil directly, but from people quoting him that, oh, well, the, the growth way we're on right now, it doesn't feel like it, but it's going to infinity. Well, eventually it is. But but not this century. It's not it's it's the growth rate we're on right now is actually just not that scary. It's not.
0: Yeah, I just calculated and it would be uh, seven times bigger by the end of the century.
1: Oh, OK. Yeah, right. So it's 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 definitely always somewhere, but it's not that crazy. And so the claim is different. The claim is that there is a different kind of dynamic called accelerating growth and we may or may not get back on it. And we don't know if we will. And this is not something I'm like confident in. And if we if we're not able as a as a kind of, you know, economy to create the things that do what humans do in more scale, then, you know, we just keep on this pace for longer. And it's if we get on the accelerating growth trajectory that all of a sudden everything moves way faster, not overnight, but way faster.
0: Yeah. So it seems like this might be a really recurring kind of crucial consideration, whether we should expect growth to stay at roughly the same rate or even slow down or whether we should expect it to accelerate in the way that it has over longer time scales. So I might, I might link to a couple of different pieces on that. You talk about it in the in the second piece in this series about the duplication duplication of people. Yeah, there's also a couple of other introductions, one on Slate Star Codex that you've uh, referred to. And I guess, of course, for people who really want to go deep into it, there's the the David Rudman long report for for Open Phil on this macro history economic growth topic. So is there anything else you want to refer people to?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the duplicator piece was my best shot at explaining it. And with help from Maria on your team with with some great illustrations and uh you know, and it links to three other things that two of them are open fill reports and one of them is a the Slate Star Codex piece. So that, that was where I was getting it. It's a very standard economic theory thing, but uh, in terms of accessible explanations, that's what I
0: got. Yeah. The Slate Star Codex post is the, the year the singularity was cancelled, right? Yeah. So setting aside maybe this uninformed prior issue, what are the best pieces of empirical real world evidence that we can get on how we should expect AI, AI to progress in your view?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, frankly, a lot of my series is about kind of anticipating ways you might think we'd be able to forecast AI or ways you might think we'd be confident it's not coming and kind of, you know, trying to undermine that because I don't believe that stuff really holds up too great. So a lot of it is about priors and the burden of proof. And then, you know, a lot of it is about, well, you know, it doesn't really feel like it's coming. What does that mean? There's there's not a ton to go on in forecasting. AI. I think that itself is very scary. And I think the big points I would cite is I would say, you know, we've barely started trying in some sense. Like you look at, you know, you look at civilization on a thousands of years scale or a billions of years scale. And it's like, you know, the first computer that was kind of a real computer was like, you know, 1945 or something. First computer ever was the 19th century, which is also not that long ago, but it couldn't really do anything. And yeah, I mean, I I think the semi-informative priors report by Tom Davidson is kind of one way of looking at it. it's like, we just haven't been trying that long. And so it really could be soon. And so once you get into that headspace, we're just like, we really have nothing to go on. Then what do you have to go on? And you have expert opinions. So you have the survey by Katja Grace and others, which is you know basically pointing to similar timelines that I am, although I, there's various signs that the experts didn't seem to be thinking very hard about the questions. And they give much longer timelines in response to kind of a, what seems to be a very similar, differently worded prompt. And then there's Ajaya's report on biological anchors. And I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail on that. I will really quickly I will say a couple of things because you cause you just had her on the podcast. I will say one, you know, I think her report's amazing. You know, it's over 150 pages, it's pretty technical. One of the pieces in the series is just summarizing it, and that 's all it is it 's just like here here's a here's a layperson you know fifteen page or so summary of a j s report. You could go into all the framework and all the ways that is you know too aggressive, too conservative, and you know all the considerations and I think you did that with a j i the high level that I would say is I would just say, we have never trained an ai model like a like a deep learning model or something like that that has computational power comparable to the human brain or even like 1% of the human brain. It's never been done yet. And, and I, and I think, I think it's like really, really recently that we saw the first model that is even getting within range of like a mouse brain. But in the coming century, according to the compute projections that AJ is using, which I think could be improved for sure, you know, we will not only see the economic ability to train a human brain size model, we'll see the economic ability to train much, much more than a human brain sized model to train a human brain sized model doing tasks that take, you know, a thousand times or or more as much compute and as much effort as like the kind of tasks that the language models are doing. And you can add quite a lot of slop and you can even start saying when will it be affordable to do as much computation as all of the history of evolution did with all the brains that have ever existed. And that also tentatively looks like it's kind of late this century by the very rough estimate. So it's like, you know, you're running these estimates of like and, and it just. We've never come within range of the compute we need, but in the next century, in this century, we will see way more compute than you would come up with on most frameworks of what it might take to train a brain-sized model. And that that doesn't close the argument. You then have to talk about, well, is it enough to have a lot of compute? Do you need to have the right software, the right algorithms, the right training environments, the right goals? But a century is also a long time to figure all that out. And so, you know, that's, that's the basic intuition. And, and you could, you know, you get into the details in the technical report, but the basic intuition is like, this could be the biggest thing that ever happens. And it really seems like this century is a very good candidate for it to happen.
0: Yeah. Just, on the, you know, would have the ability to do more computation than all of evolution has ever done. Is is it possible that we just won't we'll never get there because we'll run up against physical limits of what chips can, chips can do? Do you know where, where those estimates are coming from?
1: Yeah, the computation projections, I think, are one of the areas of the model that most needs improvement. And I think we want, you know, I would hope that sometime in the next year or two, we'll see just like a much better version of that because it's a nice, you know, it's a nice, well-defined problem that someone could work on. And and Mm. I kind of hope someone does. So right now, it's just this very like simple mathematical extrapolation. It's, It's not assuming Moore's Law goes on forever, but it's, It's, you know, it's just a kind of a simple mathematical function that's extrapolating it out. And what you'd really want to do is you'd really want to say, okay, how long can Moore's Law continue in its current form? Probably not that much longer. Moore's Law is just like the, you know, the number of transistors on a chip going up over time. And then it's like, what else could happen that could speed up compute. And there's a bunch of stuff that's about deep learning specifically and kind of optimizing the chips better for the kind of things that today's AI systems are doing. And then there's like a bunch of wild card possibilities like optical computing and quantum computing that could drastically increase compute. So the picture does get pretty complicated. It's one of these things, it's, it's like my informal sense is that these simple mathematical curves are not going to look wildly off after the projections have been done right. But I, yeah, totally admit that the projections, you know, are not what they could be. But I don't think I will I will say something important, which is I don't think that when like, I don't think anyone has done the projections the right way. So I think when people are saying, you know, well, I think this is all too crazy. They're not like I did the projections is not happening. They're just that's not what's happening They're You know, so I think I think someone needs to figure this out.
0: Yeah, I get the impression that broader society in which, you know, people have jobs to do and lives to live and they're they're not paying a ton of attention to all the news on actual AI capabilities that in broader society, they're really underestimating the degree to which we're getting kind of clarity on what AI might be able to do. And when, because so many of these things aren't science fiction anymore, there actually are applications that would have amazed people 10 10 or 20 years ago. And that means that kind of a lot of things, we might be able to begin to expect a bunch of stuff in the coming decades as just natural extensions of what already exists, like even if we do just do like a more like linear projection forward approach. I guess that kind of relies to some degree on my subjective impression of how impressive are the yeah. things that like these these new uh, new language models can do and the new image models and so on, which is is necessarily kind of, kind of subjective. But nonetheless, I find this what seems to me to be a disjunct between the reality of what AI can do and what people perceive it as being capable of doing to be quite quite frustrating. Yeah, do you share this general perception?
1: Sort of, you know. I think I think you're right to point that it's your your subjective thing because I think this is this is actually a topic that I found surprisingly difficult to talk with people about. Is just like. Two people will look at an AI system and one will be like, Oh my god, that thing is amazing. Like, I didn't know we were making that kind of progress. And another person will be like, What is this? This is nothing. This is trivial. You know, this AI, this is not really reasoning, it's just using this pattern, which th- that's a thing people say a lot. I mean, but I, I I think you could say that of humans as well. You know, I think I think most of the time, even when I feel like I really understand something, I don't know. I'm usually doing some kind of pattern recognition and I, and I realize I don't understand it as soon as it changes a little bit. So I think one of the things that I also talk about in the series is this idea of, you know, looking at how impressive the system seemed to you and projecting that forward. And I think it's just dicey. I think it's just like I watch AI experts talk about this stuff and it just it feels like there's no rhyme or reason to it. it, it there's there's I, I remember one case of just like a person who's like, so like oh we'll never get there AIs cannot do this they can't do that they can't do this they can't do that and then all of a sudden there was like some paper that came out and this person was like oh my god oh my god no 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 it's coming soon and it's like I looked at the paper I was like I don't even know what you're talking like what is new here I don't even (laughs) you know so and and other people would look at it and be unimpressed and it's just it's actually it's it's very hard to pin this stuff down you can look at what GPT-3 is doing I think in some ways it's very impressive in some ways it's not It's able to kind of like continue stories that people start. It's able to imitate their tone. It's able to answer questions. It's able to pass a lot of these language tests that people used to think would be the really hard ones. That seems to be like a lot for one kind of model trained in a simple way. But you could break it all day with all kinds of weaknesses and weird stuff that it does. And, you know, I've tried to kind of not make the argument rely on that. I think I think you can you can step back from that stuff and you can say whether or not things seem impressive to me right now you know, the amount of computation that's going to be available is rising dramatically. Investment in the field is rising dramatically. Research is rising dramatically. It's very hard to know what's going to happen, but we're passing a lot of key milestones this century, and who knows where that's going.
0: Yeah. Is there some kind of deep underlying philosophical fact that is driving the fact that we just can't evaluate how impressive, <laughs> it, like it's, it's quite surprising, right? Because when, when people, yeah. when you have like different physical systems, you're like, that's bigger and that's like, that's capable of yeah, doing yeah. more of this stuff. But with this, it's just people com- completely disagree about like how difficult a task is. I mean, maybe that just says something about the, the human perspective more than any like reality about information processing, but <laughs> I don't know. I have it's have no it's idea. Very
1: I mean, one way to think about it is we we don't know how to describe the goal because the goal is to do everything we can do. And and if we were able to it's like it's hard to it's hard to describe the core of of what you're able to do, you know. And so I I don't know. I I actually have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But I think it is is a very hard, confusing topic to talk about. So is consciousness. And, you know, we just have to do our best.
0: All right. Yeah. Having sampled some of the key points from the, the series, I mean, it's yeah, there's a substantial amount of amount of work in there. And if people want to dive in, we've we haven't justified everything we've said here. It has just been a sample pattern. You can find the rest at cold takes.com. But yeah, to, just to help us uh, with, with, with the next section, maybe could you kind of recap the key messages that you'd want people to, to remember after having read it?
1: Yeah. So, um, there's this diagram I kind of use over and over again in the series that might be, might be good to insert here. Cause that's, that's, that's kind of how I tried to make the whole thing followable. So basically there's, there's kind of a, a few key claims made in the series. So one is eventually, eventually we could have this galaxy spanning civilization that has this high degree of stability and this digital nature that is deeply unfamiliar from today's perspective. So that's, that's like claim number one. And if you, I think claim number one, I mean, different people have different intuitions, but if you think we have 100,000 years to get to that kind of technology, I think a lot of people would find that pretty plausible. And that already is pretty wild because that means that we're among the earliest intelligent life in the galaxy. Claim two is that this could happen much more quickly than you might imagine because we're all used to constant growth a lot of our history is accelerating growth. And if we change from constant growth to accelerating growth via the ability to duplicate or automate or copy the things humans do to move the economy forward, then 100,000 years could become 10 years, could become one year. So that's claim two. And then claim three is that there's a specific way that that automation might take place via AI, and that when we try to estimate that and try to forecast it, it looks like the, all the estimation methods we have and all the best guesses we can make. And they're not, they're so far from perfect, but they do point to the century and they they actually tend to point to a fair amount sooner than the end of the century. And so that's that's clean three. And so when you when you put those three together, it's, you know, we're going to a crazy place. We can actually get there quickly if we have the right kind of tech and the right kind of tech could be coming this century. And therefore it's a crazy century. The final, you know, the final piece of the puzzle is just... Gosh, that all sounds too crazy. And a lot of the series is just trying to point out that we live in a crazy time and it's uh, it's not too hard to see it just by looking at like charts of economic growth, by looking at timelines of, you know, of interesting events that have happened in the history of the galaxy and the planet.
0: Yeah, so one response that a few people have had to this idea that we're living in this like extremely bizarrely, uniquely important time in history would be, this has to be an illusion somehow. And that somehow could be that we're in a computer simulation where people are studying this particular interesting part of history. Uh, given that you're, you're clearly a believer in the idea that we could run simulations, it could, could have digital people. Does this seem like a life possibility to you?
1: Yeah, like the simulation thing, I think, is a place where I do seem to have different intuitions from other people. I think a lot of people here... Maybe we're in a simulation. They're just like, that's too crazy. That's just too crazy. And I don't know. I mean, to me, to me, it doesn't necessarily seem that crazy. Like, if it's true, it doesn't necessarily change anything about our actions. And I think a lot of times, like, the underlying reality we're living in is a lot weirder and crazier than we were imagining, or at least it doesn't speak the same language we thought it was speaking. But the implications, you know, are just this all the same stuff we see and and nothing really changes. Quantum mechanics is a good example of that, where it's just like the way that physics actually behaves is just very alien to us. And it's very hard to describe in our language. And every time you try to slap your concepts on it, it slips away. And every weird thing you can think of actually happens in quantum mechanics, you know, but it all adds up to normality is like a phrase Eliezer Yudkowsky has used. It's like, well, we're here. And and I I didn't, none of this means that a flying spaghetti monster is about to attack you. It just means that the root of it underneath everything you see is weirder than you think. So, you know, I just don't find it that weird to think we're in a simulation, like because it doesn't necessarily change anything. I don't think it's that wild. It's in some ways I'm kind of thinking, well, there's two ways the world could be. One is that there's these laws of physics and they operate randomly and they generated us, exactly us. And another way is that there's something else going on and someone or something else had some reason to create something like us. And it's like, that's the the second one. Most things fitting that description would be a simulation. And I'm just like, I don't really see why the first one is so much more likely than the second. So, you know, so I don't find it that wacky. And I think in some ways, like I had a little trouble taking this possibility seriously when people wouldn't engage with that possibility and acknowledge it and talk about what it means. So I think I had a lot of conversations where someone would be like, well, I think we're going to build this AI that does this and that. And then we're going to end up spanning the galaxy. And so we need to act now or we won't span the galaxy or we will, but it'll be bad. And I'd be like, okay, but like, this is all very dramatic. Like, this is all a lot. Like, you know, does this make you think that maybe, maybe we're in a simulation somehow that, that, that somehow there's a reason we're in this kind of high leverage position like, simulation that's so crazy. And I just, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't understand that kind of thinking. And so, you know, early in the process of grappling with these ideas, it was very important to me to at least do a little bit of thinking about the simulation stuff. and Ajaya talked about that in her in her podcast, the stuff she did and I won't repeat it. but I will say it was just important to me to like think about it a little bit and be like, is this a possibility? Would it radically change anything? And our conclusion was kind of like, look like you could definitely make the argument. you could you could make the argument that you know if in fact the way that the universe goes is that there's intelligent life that builds a galaxy spanning civilization out of digital parts, then the moment, by which I mean like century or, you know, millennium, in which it created that technology might be very interesting to all the other, you know, to all the creatures that live after that point. They might want to study it. They might want to see how it went. They might want to learn things about what happened. They might want to like, I don't know, relive it. And so like, it's totally possible that, uh, you know, that actually this makes a lot more sense when you think what what's more likely that, you know, we just randomly ended up in this very Weird, important, early time, or that this weird, important, early time already happened, and there's some reason that beings are very interested in kind of rerunning it. So I, I think that's that's fundamentally reasonable. But we kind of concluded it doesn't really change much. It, it it doesn't change nothing. It changes some of the numbers, the numbers you see in like the essay astronomical waste. Those those numbers change, but it doesn't really change the bottom line. It doesn't change like what should we be doing, what matters in a way that we were easily able to see. And I I don't really think this is a topic that like. Is that worth a lot of deep investigation of or, you know, or needs a big deep dive? But it was something I wanted to kind of like look at. I don't think it should just be like tossed out. I don't think it ends up mattering very much, but it was important to me to kind of like think that piece of it through.
0: Yeah, I think you're in a small group of uh, people who were driven to take all of this a whole lot more seriously by the by the simulation argument that that's where you got on board rather than that's where you got (laughs) off board.
1: For me, it was more it was more like I, I had trouble taking it seriously until that thing was acknowledged and grappled with a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's right.
0: Let's turn now to what you think are the biggest weaknesses or you know ways that this whole worldview could uh, that that seems so plausible on its face, at least to you and me. How could it end up being wrong? What do you have to say to that?
1: Yeah. So the most important century hypothesis is kind of a, you know, I'm kind of saying something is is likely enough that we should take it super seriously. And so there's a bunch of like different things you could mean by how could you be wrong? So one thing you could mean is like, how could it turn out that this isn't the most important century and none of this stuff happens? And, you know, for that one, I mean, there's just, a, I don't know, there's a zillion ways and all I'm even saying is that it's it's reasonably likely. There's another thing you might mean, which is like, are there investigations you could do today that when you were done might change your mind and make you think that that this is not a good bet? This is not likely enough. Then another thing you could, you could mean is like, well, without doing further investigation, what are the best things people say that are just objections that might be right. And then and then a final thing, which which I actually find like maybe the most interesting is just like, how could it be that this whole idea and this whole vibe is just the wrong thing to be thinking about, even if like the predictions are true? Maybe it's just the wrong thing to be thinking about or it's just holding this like leading people off the wrong cliff here or off some <laughs> cliff, probably most cliffs that you'd go off are the wrong cliff. Uh, you know, how could that be? So so those are those are different things. So so which one do you want to tackle?
0: Well, I love it. Let, let, let's do all of them. Uh, maybe we could do them in order. All right. So, okay, yeah. So the first one was just ways that this could end up not being the most important century. I suppose let's maybe modify that to the not the most important thousand or 10,000 years because uh, otherwise the answer might be boring that it just happens in 200 years. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Well, what's a way that this could not be the most important millennium?
1: Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, we've we've made all these guesses and projections about, you know, what kind of computational power we think is like roughly equivalent to a human brain and how much it would take to train an AI that size and whether an AI that size would be able to do certain things and whether those things would have certain implications. So it's all guesswork. I mean, any piece of that could be wrong. I mean, you'd have to have a piece be really wrong and then have other pieces not be missing in the other direction. So it's not I think I don't think I don't think this is like a super conjunctive hypothesis. I don't think you have to believe like 10 independent things to believe this. We've got our best guess estimates. Every number in there could be too high or too low, but we could have missed overall in either direction. So, you know, just to rattle some stuff off. I mean, the human brain could be a lot more complex than we think. It could just require an unattainable amount of compute to automate it or you know, maybe maybe it's what we think roughly, but it's still like we're we're only guessing that it's going to become affordable to get that much compute. So maybe it just never will. We'll hit the physical limits of making chips faster in the normal way, and we won't come up with a new way of making them faster. You know, we could we could choose never to do all this stuff. I mean, we could we could kind of as a society say we're regulating this stuff to death. We don't ever want it. I think a lot of people would think that is the right thing to do. and, And that is certainly something that can happen, though. I think that itself would be kind of a You know, I mean, grappling with the possibility of the most important century would be would be an important way to think about whether you do want that to happen. So, I mean, those are those are all things. And then, of course, you know, you could you could automate science and technology, but it could turn out that, you know, the scientific breakthroughs that there's not that many really transformative ones left. And the digital people thing doesn't work or it does work, but it doesn't have the consequences, I say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I should be in the position here of uh, of, of bolstering your argument, but <laughs> I'll do one bit of it, which is you're saying maybe the reason why it does just seem so plausible that we are living in the most important century, even though like any of these specific claims is like very dubious, it's just that there are so many different channels by which you could get a massive a massive transformation that it doesn't, you aren't banking on like any particular claim about some technology, like this one thing is going to arrive at, at this one point in time. Yeah, do, do you kind of agree with that? Or maybe, I guess it is somewhat centered on the idea of, I guess like digital, like being able to digitize minds. Yeah.
1: I think it's somewhat contingent. Like I, I, I somewhat agree with you. Like it's certainly true that like there's a lot of stuff that might not be just what I'm describing, but might be kind of next to it that happens instead. And that does bring up the probability. So it's, you know, I've, I've described a lot of specific ideas, digital people, you know, pasta, which is this process for automating science and technological advancement. I've described those to help people think about them, help them be concrete. And I might miss by a little bit and there, or, or even moderate amount. And there's something else that is kind of like that. It's not true that there's like a gazillion ways I could, you know, I mean, there, there are, there's many ways I haven't thought of, but if you were to say to me, Holden, you know, there's not going to be anything like pasta this century. We're not going to have AI that can automate this stuff. I'd be like, well, I can still think of ways this could be the most important century, but I, it's way, way, way less likely now, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that, yeah. So I think there are, there are specific, there are specific things. And then if you said digital people and never be possible, I think I would then be like, well, I would still guess that the future is about as crazy as it would be with digital people, but it's now I'm down to like 50, 50
0: or something yeah I suppose if you take digital minds off the table as a possibility completely maybe you could fall back on something like you know our brain computer interfaces where we enhance human yeah human ability to think or reason using machines in some way that that could then you know be a significant step towards accelerating economic growth again
1: yeah, exactly. So, yeah, brain computer interfaces is another way it could happen and and that one I just think is like less likely because I think that requires, you know, a lot of progress in neuroscience which I think is moving a lot more slowly than AI. But it's is is it possible this century? Yes. Would I have the same fire behind, you know, gosh, everyone wake up, it's the most important century? Uh, yeah, probably probably not.
0: Yeah. OK, let's move on to the second category of ways this could be wrong, which is uh, kind of what investigations you would love to do, I suppose, if you had a duplicated machine and could make many more copies of yourself and, and your whole research team. Like, well, yeah, what, what uncertainties would you like to resolve?
1: Yeah, so so things I could imagine doing, I mean, maybe, maybe if you did like a really great study of like animal brains or animal behavior, rather, when compared it to ML systems, you would just be like, wow, these animals, they actually are basically doing these tasks that ML researchers have been trying really hard to do, and they really should be able to do them if the frameworks we're using for brain equivalents and things like that are right, and they're really not. And so there's something really big we're missing here. It's like maybe these, you know, maybe brains are doing a lot more computation than we've estimated or they're doing something really sophisticated that we can't match with the amount of computation we thought it would take. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you, you know, if you found out that there's there's some big challenge in AI that the big models of today are nowhere near and, you know, honeybees are nailing it you know that would be that would definitely shift me a lot i mean a thing that would really change my mind a lot is if we did the better compute projections i'm expecting that to come out to kind of similar conclusions to what we have at the moment you know different but kind of similar but maybe we did them and it was just like nope like 10 more years of the current rate of compute getting cheaper and then we're done and there's like nothing else coming down the pike nothing else is going to work out everything else is a crazy long shot even for the rest of the century quantum computing very unlikely and then we were kind of okay. Well, that that's not even going to get us to be able to train, you know, a human sized model at all. Or maybe it, maybe it is. I don't. But you know, it's, it's certainly not leaving a lot of not leaving a lot of space. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, would I would I then say there's no way this is happening? No, but. I think there is a certain kind of reality to it. There's a certain kind of this is our best guess. This is the best we could do is that it's now it's this century and that would go away. And then you could fall back on the philosophical case and say, well, even a very small chance. And I find that less compelling, but still somewhat compelling. So I probably wouldn't do nothing on it, but I would have a lot less energy for it and a lot less like, you know, hey, wake up. It's the most important century vibe, at least. So those are those are investigations that I can imagine. I could sort of imagine just like. A sophisticated enough argument between ai researchers resulting in like actually these tasks that humans do are just impossible to build a training environment for and they've never been approached by ai systems and never will be or something so i can kind of imagine that stuff
0: yeah okay what about the third category which is yeah the the best objections that people people raise when presented with this worldview
1: yeah, I think there's a lot in the series that reasonable people can disagree on. Obviously, <laughs> you know, the the biological anchors framework, which is where, you know, mo- doing most of the work of the specific estimates of when pasta, the, the advanced AI is coming. You know, that has a ton of guesswork in it. And there's plenty of places it acknowledges and, and it, the report itself discusses. And this is this is a thing we do at Open Philanthropy. Always. Our reports are always discussing all the ways they could be wrong. And the report has a nice big list of ways it's, you know, aggressive. It's kind of, it's really the big one. It's really focused on compute. It's really saying, you know, when you can afford to build or train a really big AI model and you've had a few decades to work out a lot of the missing, you know, software and a lot of the missing training environments, then we're getting into high probabilities. And maybe that's false. Maybe the, you know, maybe compute is not the bottleneck. Maybe the, that we really need fundamentally different kinds of algorithms, and there's a way to know that now if you were more sophisticated about it. I think it's a big point of like disagreement among AI researchers. And the further thing you have to believe is that a few decades won't be enough to resolve that, even with a greatly increased amount of you know talent and money going into AI. So I mean there's 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 these ways that it it's making a lot of assumptions. It's it's making guesses about what's gonna happen to compute and what's and you can have different guesses. I will say here you know, here I think that you could definitely have different probabilities than me, but I, I start to have trouble with the probabilities going too low. So like based on what we know, I um, you could have different guesses from me, but I think the guesses would still leave like, you know, more than 10% or something of the of this being this kind of super important century transition. And then another thing you could do to kind of disagree with me is you could just have a very different interpretation of the social epistemological environment, like the the fact that there's no robust expert consensus. So I have a whole piece about this where I I talk at length about the idea that like climate change, like climate change has some things in common with this hypothesis in the sense of like, you've got these very complex, you know, guesswork laden models that are projecting that something terrible is going to happen. Bad things are starting to happen now, but they're not really anywhere near in range of the terrible things people are saying are going to happen. It's many years out, but a lot of people trust the climate change worries and don't trust these worries. And why is that? And I think a lot of that is because there's a really well-developed field of climatology. It's a really well-developed field and there's a lot of consensus in that field. And so it feels like there are real experts and they really believe in this. And that is, I will just own it. That is not the case for this AI stuff. There is no field of AI-tology or to the extent there's a field, it's like a few people writing reports. It's not, you know, it's not the the maturity of Making a huge meeting, (laughs) bringing every country together. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it doesn't it doesn't have it's not in the same place. It's like a lot of people just look around themselves and they're like, I don't see all the experts worrying about this. I don't see a big consensus. And I need that to believe something crazy like this. And that that is something that you could. I don't think it's crazy to have that attitude. I disagree with it. Like I think and I especially disagree with it if you are an ambitious, effective altruist who wants to be the kind of person who can be early, you know, be the kind of person who can see things before others see them and act before others act and take your biggest opportunities to have an outsized impact, I think it's going to be you can't really run that at the same time as you're running well i don't really get out of bed until until it's known until the experts they're all there and, and there's a yeah. mature field and they're all in agreement but but I don't think it's crazy I don't think it's crazy to take that view
0: because by then it's too late
1: <laughs> I mean it's not i mean it's not too late for uh climate change so it's not it's not too late to do anything, but I think you've missed a lot of the You've missed maybe your best opportunities to make to make a difference by being super early. And so that's, yeah, I think that's something you don't want to do. Yeah. Something I don't want to do anyway.
0: Do you have a theory for why it is that there isn't more of a consensus around these broad concerns? I guess my reaction would be like, it takes time for people to change their mind, especially uh, about something that's like as peculiar as this, like making these kind of forecasts, even if they're sound, you wouldn't expect people to change their mind overnight. And, yeah, and it's like right. important to look a bit at the trajectory of how many people take this worldview very seriously. And the trajectory seems to be robustly upwards. But yeah, not, not everyone finds that persuasive.
1: Yeah, I do feel that way. I mean, I think, you know, you just look at climate science versus AI forecasting. It's just like one of them is a field like people have PhDs in climate science or climatology. There are universities running programs. It's just like the whole process of getting to the point where there could be a field of forecasting stuff like this that just like... Yeah, people started talking about this stuff not that long ago, and it would take a long time. I think it will happen. Uh, It may happen. Well, it may not have time to happen before all the crazy stuff happens. But, you know, by default, I think it, it will. It's on track to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so I think just to yeah, just for people to like, you know, the first people who start talking about something, then they have to get to the point where it could be a study, a program of study and other people know how to study it. And then, people who are like coming up in their career can get degrees in it. And you know, that just all that stuff takes a real long time to play out.
0: Yeah. So there are smart people that have been Phil and elsewhere who have heard most of these arguments, but they don't find themselves, they don't find that their actions end up being very much, very much guided by this worldview. What are they thinking other than just like, you know, different people want to make different bets? What are the people who are like, who are skeptical of this think?
1: Well, I think different people want to make different bets. Is a lot of it, especially at open fill, and I think that's that's a really key part of it for me. Is I, I really I think there's many people who would be totally reasonable to ignore this because they are in a position where it would be really hard and costly and like not in tune with what they're good at to be thinking about the most important century. And they're doing something else, and they're amazing at it, and they love it. And it's always hard to know, you know, what kind of benefits you might get from just being really good at something else. So, you know, I'm really into worldview diversification, which I know you talked about with Alexander and, you know, division of labor and and having the EA community not all be in all in on one bet, having open philanthropy, not all in on one bet. So that's a big part of it for me. The other, you know, the other thing I would say is like, so what is what is the case against spending your life worrying about the most important century or spending your time on it? And, you know, I think there is a pretty good case against which is like the so what is is kind of under baked right now. It's kind of underdeveloped it's not it's not zero. There is stuff that I think that I think people should be doing and should be doing more of. The closest thing to something really robustly good might be like technical research on the AI alignment problem. So how do you how do you build an AI that kind of is doing what you thought it was going to do instead of doing some other random thing and maybe maybe building a galaxy scale civilization around some random set of values you didn't even mean to give it? That seems like a good thing to be doing. I have to be honest. We support it. We fund a lot of it. I'm really into it. I'm really pro it. I cannot look you in the eye for any of it and say this really feels like it's making us noticeably safer. It feels like very early stage stuff. A lot of it's super theoretical. A lot of it's on systems that are just like not that smart yet. So, you know, it's hard for me to there's nothing I can say. It's like the best thing I can say about my very favorite AI alignment research work is like, yeah, that could help. I guess that could help good that you're doing it. Um, and that makes me nervous. And, you know, and, and of course, and then there's other stuff where it's like people will say, oh, it's the most important century. Like we got to build AI as soon as possible. So it happens to the US instead of China. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, hold up. Maybe that's right. Absolutely. It's also possible that, you know, racing to build AI, building it as fast as you can. That's exactly how we let this whole thing spin out of control and create this galactic civilization before we're ready, before, you know, anyone's really had a chance to have a conversation about what we want it to look like or about how to get the AI to do what we want, you know, or or to even just not do totally random weird stuff that, that ends up being very powerful stuff. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of people like jump into this with let's do this, let's do that. And the truth is, you know, that is the biggest hesitation for me in writing the series and putting it out there is just, You know, I think we're not at the phase where we have a lot of clarity about what to do. And that makes me nervous because I just I think the the proper mood for the most important century, it's it's not being excited. It's not being afraid. It's just kind of being like, ugh, like just being stunned and just feeling like, dang, like something big could be happening. It's bigger than us. It's it's above our pay grade as like an entire species. It doesn't feel like we're ready. But
0: I don't see how to help.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't see how to help. And so it's just And that is a weird that's a hard mood to convey in a series of blog posts. (laughs) And that is the thing that gave me pause. And I'm, I'm trying to convey it and I'm trying to just get people to think like, This thing is big, and I have not had a chance to process it, and we as a species have not had a chance to process it, and we are going to think about things we can do that help. And there's a lot of candidates, and there's a lot of really interesting open questions for people who are really great self-directed researchers that I think can get us that clarity on how to make this go well. And there are a lot of ideas that I think are promising. For example, like before we build the galactic-scale civilization, it would be nice if we really took our time to debate and discuss and reflect and think about what we want it to look like. Like, there are things that seem to be better than other things, like factors that seem to be correlated with things going well instead of badly. And if we keep reasoning it through and carefully discussing it and thinking about it, I think we will, over time, get more and more understanding of what we can do to help. But yeah, I think it's not crazy for someone to say... I don't know what to do with that. And I have this other super exciting thing I'm working on that's going to lead me to all kinds of great places. And when you come back in 10 years knowing what you want, I'll be in a better position to help you then. So I think I think that's a completely reasonable thing. And in another world, I might do that. I think in the world we're in, it really matters that Alexander works at Open Philanthropy. It really matters that I think the global health and well-being work is going to be in great shape without needing my help. And I'm trying to be where it makes the most sense for me to be.
0: Yeah. A general property of the way that I think across the board that has always been the case is just that I'm much less inclined than average to reject ideas because they seem weird. And I think that might come apart from just a kind of, kind of contrarian instinct or, you know, I enjoy playing around with ideas and having ideas that are different than other people. But I do also think it's <laughs> I think it can be justified. Just because... Yeah. People want to say, I don't want to accept that. I don't want to take that very seriously because it's weird. But people's calibration of what is weird is just based on what they've already observed. And if you look at history and you look at like how people's views of physics and economics and all these other, and like religion and how all of this has changed, people in the past would think that the things that we believe and are doing now are absolutely bizarre. And, you know, if you went and got a hunter-gatherer and brought them to the modern world, they would just be completely astonished, to the same degree probably that we would be by a future involving digital people and, and, and artificial intelligence. So I just I just kind of want to make the claim that it's not safe to reject ideas that are weird in physics or in social science or in predicting the predicting the future. Do you have any have any comments on that?
1: Well, I think I think what you're saying is true. Although I also think a lot of people really are better off doing exactly what you're criticizing. Like a lot a lot of people are going to have much better lives if they reject things that are weird, even if they seem true. Like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bad ideas out there. And um, let's say you're a person and you kind of grow up and it's like. You don't want to go to school, but everyone kind of tells you go to school. It'd Be weird if you didn't. You go to school. Then you don't want to get a job, but I don't know. You see everyone getting a job, so you get a job. And then like a bunch of cults come knocking on your door, and what they're saying sounds really exciting, but it's weird, so you don't do it. And I think you just won. Like I think I think that went really well for you. And it's true that okay, the job you took was a weird job that people in the year two hundred would have not imagined. And it's true that there will be other jobs in a million, but you did good. You did good, and that and that worked out well for you. And so I I don't think that it's crazy to have this anti-weirdness heuristic. I really don't. I think what is good is to evaluate it and poke it and think about it over time, you know, because I think it's like what I've been trying to do with my life is think about like, what are the weird things that turn out to actually be pretty reasonable? And what are the weird things that I can just dismiss out of hand? And what are the patterns in that? It's like, what kinds of people should I be taking more seriously? What kinds of introductions and language and styles are correlated with someone who's about to change my mind for real instead of someone who's about to lead me on a wild goose chase. And I think that stuff's really important. So I'm not, you know, I, I honestly, I can't say I've ever been a person who's very sympathetic to like, here's a four part logical argument that I delivered in five minutes. Now go change what you're doing with your life. I've, I've, I've really never been a fan of that. I've always, and you can see the way that I've, that I've done things in my career is I've, I've always wanted to do my homework before I make a big bet. And there may be maybe you're one of those people. I don't think I am. Maybe you're one of those people who just like you just have awesome intuitions and it's just like you're just you're blessed. And like when things make sense to you in five minutes, that's just because they make sense. And if something is stupid, <laughs> you'll see the problem with it immediately. And you just have this gift. And that's great. But I don't I don't think I have that gift. And I also wouldn't know initially if I did. So I'm I'm into kind of watching as you go through life. And a thing that I've gone through life is I've kind of been like, you know, certain kinds of weird are worth looking into further and may just be worth betting on. And there are certain kinds of things that I, it has not been helpful to me to dismiss because they're weird. And I want to do less dismissing of those things. And then you get this sort of accelerated self-improvement in your beliefs when, when you have that attitude, because you're learning, you know, I learn about, it's like I was studying when I was at GiveWell. It's like we were learning about bed nets and deworming, but we were also learning about what kinds of studies to trust and what kinds of people to trust and who turns out to be right when you learn more and who turns out to be wrong when you learn more and what weird stuff turns out to be crazy and what weird stuff turns out to be exactly the sort of thing you should have been doing. And so it's like, I'm trying to do this meta learning at the same time as I'm doing this learning. And now I've got a pretty well-developed sense of what kind of weird do I want to ignore or what kind of weird do I want to get into? So that that would be more the way I'd put it. Yeah. I do agree. You shouldn't... A lifelong rule of dismiss everything just because it's weird... It seems like it has to leave you short of your potential to do amazing things. It may also stop you from doing really stupid things. So I, I do agree with that part.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess there is a pretty big distinction between how willing are you to do things that are completely nonconformist in your lifestyle or, or life choices where people can learn all yeah. from experience and like how much should you do that in in a, in a what is effectively a research project where you're trying to get ahead of the crowd or, or like entrepreneurship. It's a style of entrepreneurship where you're trying to get ahead of the crowd and figure things out so you can either make more money or or, or do more good. And in that case, rejecting things that are weird just almost certainly means that you're going to fail because oh, yeah. <laughs> the only way to... yeah.
1: Once you get into the business where your your whole thing is upside, like you're, you know, essentially at a startup and you're just you just wanna you just wanna like do something amazing and that's your goal. That's a lot of people is not their professional goal. Once it is, I mean, then it becomes extremely costly to just be dismissive of weird stuff. Although at the same time, I mean like it's like you gotta preserve your time to be able to look into the most important weird stuff. So you can't go chasing down every weird thing that sounds like it might be true. You have yeah. to have some way of distinguishing.
0: So, does the kind of some of the details of the worldview that you laid out in the in the blog post series give you any insights into, What would be the most promising ways of steering the development of AI in a a positive direction? Like one that jumped out at me is that maybe we should spend more time thinking and talking and advocating about rules that might govern how digital people are treated or potentially used, because that could be very significant. And another one might be that we should be especially attentive to progress and use of AI systems that might advance science and technology. Yeah. Do do you have any other kind of possible lessons from, from the worldview?
1: Yeah, I mean, those both seem like really important topics that have gotten like extremely little attention. Yeah, I mean, so I, I've been I, I'm still as we're talking, I'm still working on the the last piece about, you know, the implications. What does this all mean? But, you know, some, some it's like when you think about different possible ways this could go, there's a wide variation. And, you know, one way it could go is you could get kind of this this misaligned AI that I imagine you've talked about before a zillion times on this podcast, this kind of, you know, AI that's kind of off running the world in its own way, doing what it wants that has nothing to do with what it was, you know, we were trying to do. That's one possibility. Another possibility is you have, like, people just desperately racing each other to kind of control this, this digital future civilization as much of it as they can. And another is that you have people kind of negotiating with each other and trying to reach a peaceful agreement. And another is that you have a You have people like not only negotiating, but doing it in really good faith and like taking their time and like being patient and really trying to reflect on it. I think it's called the the long reflection in, in Toby Ord's book, The Precipice. And it's like, you know, I kind of named them in ascending order. So if you can make the later ones, I said, more likely relative to the to the earlier ones. So that's why I like AI alignment research. It just like seems like kind of the. the the outcome that's hardest to be excited about is the one where we just have this civilization built by some messed up AI that didn't do what we were even had any idea what it would do. So I like, you know, I like the idea of doing AI alignment research. And then I like the idea of just thinking about, you know, how can we get to a point where the key decision makers are going to understand the stakes and take them seriously and not approach them through a lens of, well, my job is to grab all the power for me or even for my country my job is to get the best outcome for the world how can we get to that place that could be a matter for you know international relations international cooperation it could also be a matter for you know just trying to get to a place where the people who are you know who are making decisions are people who are good people who understand things who are sane you know so i think i think those are those are levers that that you could try to push on. And then you could get into more specific stuff. I mean, you could, you could try to implement all the things I just said with specific policies. Maybe it would be great for us to get to a place where no one is allowed, or at least it's stigmatized, to build really huge AI models until you have certain assurances, certain things you can say about why you think that they won't lead to a terrible place. And until you've got some kind of plan for how you're going to roll them out and how we're going to govern them and, who, and who's going to make decisions and who's going to be included in those decisions, you know, and and maybe you shouldn't be allowed or, or should it, it shouldn't be encouraged to build really big AI models until you can provide some of that, until we have some clarity around that. So that's like an idea. That's an example of a specific policy that I think needs a lot more work before it's tangible enough to really make sense. But there's all kinds of, you know, specific ideas people are wrestling with and thinking about. And, you know, what if we had a policy that said this or a regulation that said that or, you know, a technology that could do this? And some of them seem like they would help. Some of them seem like they would hurt. and We should stop them. I think we have a ways to go before we have a lot of clarity on this. For some people, that might mean you should ignore it and wait for creative intellectual people to get more clarity. But I, I think for, for that to mean everyone ignores it would be a massive mistake for, for humanity.
0: All right, we should probably wrap up on the most important century uh, blog series because we've been chatting about it for a little while. I guess, yeah, despite the fact that we've been talking about it for, for so long, there is, uh, there's a lot more material in the series if people want to go check it out, and that's at uh, cold-takes.com. My guest today has been uh, Holden Karnofsky. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Holden. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that's the first half of this interview with Holden, covering the idea that we might be living in the most important century in humanity's history. Holden and I spoke for so long that we thought we will do you the favour of breaking this episode into two parts, especially as there is a nice place for a break here in the middle. The second half is going to be about how long-termism is coming along as a movement, what Holden specifically recommends people do to guide the world in the right direction, and then also a really fun final section where we cover all sorts of blog posts that Holden is writing or has written, and various other eclectic ideas that he wants to get out there. That should be out in a week or two, so obviously subscribe to the show if you haven't already. If you've made it all the way to the end of that episode, I just want to draw your attention to the Open Philanthropy Technology Policy Fellowship. Open Philanthropy is looking for applicants for this U.S. Policy Fellowship program, which is focused on high priority emerging technologies, especially artificial intelligence and biotechnology. Uh, The program is going to go for six to 12 months and offer a bunch of training, mentorship, and help matching with a host organization to try to get a full-time position in in the Washington, D.C. area. You've got until September 15th to apply for that one and you can find out more on the Open Philanthropy website all by clicking through the link on the blog post associated with this episode. As I mentioned in the intro, we are also currently hiring a new head of marketing to spread the word about this podcast and all the other services that 80,000 Hours offers. As always, you can stay on top of those opportunities and hundreds of others by regularly checking out our job board at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. If you go there and join our job board newsletter, Then you'll get an email uh, each two weeks or so uh, when that board is updated, usually with between 100 and 200 new opportunities. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and produced by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.